wouldn't put it past her. She's pale. She's sexy. She like is super strong. She lives forever. Like convince me that Olivia is not a vampire. Olivia is a vampire. You have, you have now, that's it. It's done. Welcome back to Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys rewatch podcast. This is, as always, a rewatch podcast. A lot of people don't know what that means. I think we were one of them. I've never had one before. Anyway, if you haven't seen the entire series up to and including the incredible series finale, you should not be here at this point. Please finish, then come back and play. We have some uh, pod release timing questions uh, this past week. So just a reminder, we have a summer schedule shift. Check out our Twitter account at 12M Rewatch Pod for upcoming pod release dates. We will resume a more regular schedule in the fall. We'll be like every one to two weeks, probably throughout August. Um, and then we'll see coming back. But let's get to what's super important today, which is... We have a round table. Woo, it's our first round table. There's four of us. Who do we have with us today, Beep? <laughs> well, first of all, you have Beep. And then, of course, I'm joined by the lovely Cece. Hey, guys. First of all, we have Joe back from May We Geek again. This Hi. is apparently she's here for some sort of specific reason. <laughs> I mean, yes, I have notes. Uh, I did not make a PowerPoint presentation, mostly because I don't know how to use PowerPoint. Um, but 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 I did make notes. <laughs> All right. We also have Dark Amy back, who is my airhorn, uh, <laughs> who's my deacon buddy. I do not have notes, and I came very ill prepared. So this will be great. <laughs> Ed, you don't need, you don't need, this is, this is just going to come from like the gut. You don't need notes. Right. I'm just going to shout his name over and over again yes. and how much I love him. All right. So on our next episode, we have Allison Down, who you may know as Olivia. And also we have Terry Metalis. Both of them will be with us to discuss enemy and also some other overarching questions about our amazing villain of the series. But today, on our minis, we shall discuss episode 303, Enemy, the other parts. Is there like a colon after that? Like, it's like that. <laughs> the other parts. So basically, we, we asked, we, Joe is a big Olivia fan, and there's, this, is, this is the episode that launched the Joe Olivia ship. So we always wanted Joe to come back from this episode, and there's so much just in terms of all like the one man play that Todd Stashwick puts on with Deacon and some, a lot of the other stuff going with the other characters that we thought it was worth um, the chances of digging into all of that. When Allison down and Terry Metalis are on the pod, were probably pretty slim just with all the other kind of series long Olivia questions that we um, have gotten in from you all. And we're really excited to ask her. So we have our um, Jolivia expert and our Deacon, one of our like biggest Deacon fans on to talk, kind of dig into these scenes um, in Enemy. It was written by Christopher Monfett and directed by David Grossman. So I think I thought we could just talk about some big picture themes in the episode before we jump into, we're actually going to talk about a 
the episode just character by character. And again, leaving out the really big Olivia scenes because we're going to cover those with Allison down on the next pod. Um, the first one that struck me, and even though it's a word that I feel like we kind of use all the time um, and take for granted is the name of the episode, Enemy. Um, what do you guys think of when you hear that word? Because they play with it a lot in different contexts in this episode. Like I think of Joe. <laughs> Wait, you think of me? <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Wait, but why? Yeah. <laughs> There's no reason at all. I just figured you'd have the most fun response. <laughs> oh, um, I mean, it's it's super interesting in this episode specifically because yeah, like the mo- you know when the episode starts, the- Ramsey shows up with with Olivia and Jennifer's kind of the only one being like, this is not a good idea, you guys. Like she like she doesn't come, you know, Olivia isn't anywhere that she doesn't already want to be. Like she uh, Jennifer's the one being like, she is bad news. Um, but then everyone else kind of falls into this like frenemies space with with Olivia. Um, Joan specifically, but that's a separate issue. Um, But where I think she's got, and maybe this is just, you know, the sort of like unfairness of, of being attractive. Um, But like, you know, Olivia, Olivia is very easy on the eyes. And I wonder how much of that is like, you know, disarming to everyone else. Cause you know, like how can, how can a pretty lady be so evil except she totally is. Um, (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah. Like like if she were like some creepy hag that they dragged in, like we would be like a lot more, I I would not, I would not be paying as much attention to her and Joan sharing a cigarette. Uh, Obviously, Joe. Obviously. Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) It is true though, the attractive people, you know, the attractive people have a different set of standards and especially for women, because it's already less likely for a woman to be the villain. Yeah. Right. I mean, we just, that's life. In stories, I mean, like in what's mm-hmm. presented to us. Now, trust me, I know a lot of villainous women, but <laughs> as far as what's going to be on screen, it's less likely to be a woman, and it's definitely less likely to be one who is sh- striking. Yeah, I mean, we do get they kind of lean into it, right? Like when she first first walks in, we get that shot of her back where we see where she's branded, you know, mm-hmm. with, and we'll see that moment <clears throat> when she is branded in season four, but. It's definitely right. I mean, it's like it's leaning. There's this physicality to her in this episode, not just with sort of that kind of revealing back shot, but just the way she moves, you know, like she it's like I think I said I think I said this on the last pod, but mainly it was just to get like a rile out of Jen who was like struggling with her feelings (laughs) about Olivia but she's like a cat through this like I feel like she's like prowling right and it's uh, there's just this like physical presence and yeah I mean part of it is like yeah she's a very attractive woman but not you know sometimes I feel like we've had like female villains sometimes it's like a femme fatale you know Mm -hmm. and this is not that so yeah no, it's she's not trying to be sexy and she's not trying to like use her like feminine wiles on anyone except for Jones. Um, <laughs> no, she's disarming because you don't know what she wants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, she's just this sort of like Cheshire cat of like enigma. And you're like, well, I can't take my eyes off of you, which is good because you're probably evil. But also like I can't stop looking and wondering where this is going to go. And it's probably not going to go very well for me. Right. Yeah, I'm not trying. She's not trying to seduce anyone here. She's mm-hmm. trying to get in their heads. 
So she's prowling like a cat, like she's trying to like really kind of zone in on their territory, basically. And she, yeah, she's not using her sexuality in any way to like mess with them. She's using her brains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, she has her long, you know, she has her long con, which is to take over. And she doesn't even, she's not even aware of the longest con, <laughs> which, you know, she's <laughs> pulling from it over in Titan in season four. But she also is, she's going to spend a lot of time fucking with them. Like she knows all the buttons to push and they're different ones for different people. And you watch her kind of do that with everyone. Um, the, what I was thinking about with the episode title is like, I looked up the definition um, because they've had some really interesting ways that they play with episode titles, even going all the way back um, to season one. But a person who is actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. And what I think is so interesting about it is you've got enemies who have now former enemies who now have common interests and friends who now have opposing interests. So when Ramsey and Jones have that scene together and it's, and he's like, you know, the enemy of, of, I brought you the enemy of your enemy. And she's like, I can't trust that any more than the friend of my friend. And you're like, wow, that, wait, stop. Let me think about it. Wow, that's really true, right? And the other thing that I was, you know, Ramsey is kind of like the Trojan horse in this episode, right? So they're all focused on Olivia. Jones has a little bit of her eye on the ball about whether or not we can trust Ramsey. But, you know, he's kind of a Trojan horse. And then you've got Deacon over in Titan and Malik uses very... um like specific language language with him saying, I am not your enemy and I am not your friend, right? Like he's trying to present himself as this neutral, like you're a tool that I am using because it furthers my means. But what I was trying to think about is that it's you spend this whole episode and you don't really know where anyone stands until the end. But even in the end, Ramsey's goal isn't different from theirs. He wants to kill the witness. It's just that he knows that if he explained the means to do that, they wouldn't agree. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. So it's just like, there's so many enemies within enemies and friends that are enemies. They're just playing. There's so many different layers as you go through it. And like now rewatching it, you know, now that we know that Ramsey and Olivia are in on this together and we know what Malik is up to, there's just like so many layers to unpack. The other thing that struck me was how fables and stories play such a big part in this episode. So we've talked in the past um, on the podcast about all of the Dr. Frankenstein parallels um, in this story. And if anyone's interested, we actually have a pod where Professor Aaron kind of really dove into the Frankenstein parallels. I think that one is called Hair Frankenstein, if you're interested. But this one, it almost makes it textual. So we've got this return of the Dr. Grimm, the stories that we heard about Jones and what people would say about her in the post-apocalypse. And we've also got the fable of the Gollum um, that Olivia says to Jones. And I thought that they're both really interesting, sort of <clears throat> the purpose that stories, why we tell these fables and what ideas we're trying to get at, right? And when they bring up specific stories. I'm always like, okay, what are they trying to get us to think about? Um, the Dr. Grimm is 
something that Hannah is going to both say to Jennifer and to Joan. So I think it's kind of a play on two different things. Grim, obviously the word meaning unrelentingly harsh, merciless, or severe. That's certainly sort of the street um, reputation of Jones when people would enter her facility and people would just hear that there were like body parts that came back from her machine. Um, and we're definitely going to see that kind of rear its head with her torture um, of Olivia later on in the episode. But also I was thinking about like the brothers Grimm, like the fairy tales, because when Hannah later talks about the purpose of the story was to scare people into being good. Um, I think that's kind of a clever play on words with what they chose for her. Um, you know, we can dig into it a little bit more, but I think it's there's a lot that they play with in this episode with both nurture and nature with with Deacon and his father, with Olivia kind of poking at um, Jones, asking her about what Hannah would have been like had she raised her and talking about their different creations, whether it's what is what does Olivia say? Her, she was a she was a, a creation of DNA and Jones's machine. Her creation is of metal where they're really digging into this sort of like Frankenstein, a creator and their creation. And you don't really know what the creation is going to do, if that makes sense. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think the interesting thing about Hannah talking about the story of Dr. Grimm and how um, it, it was made, it made them be good and how it affected her personally, deeply, that story always resonated with her. And it always, it, it, it struck me interesting because it made me think of in a weird sort of way, because Dr. Grimm was her mother. Mm -hmm. And of course she didn't know that, that through, through that was a nurturing, like that Jones didn't even know she was doing for her daughter, like by existing and being a part of this fable that was always told to her as she was going through the apocalypse. Like it, it did actually cause Hannah to have some sort of moral code. So she was mothering her all along. Right, but in this really tragic right. way, because you see Jones's face, you know, she's turned away from her and she's got tears in her eyes and you see her face. It is to think that her daughter was hearing this fable of this horrible monster. Yeah, that That's she was the right. monster in her daughter's like stories. Like she was yeah. the monster that caused her daughter to like be who became who she was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, yeah it's, uh, it's brutal. Um, but I, I, it just makes me think about sort of like, right, like all of the fairy tales we grew up or, or we tell, you know, children today and sort of what the, you know, stories was sort of a moral. Um, and, you know, it's just sort of like even in the post-apocalypse, we're still making up fables <laughs> to try and get kids to behave or get people to act like if you're if you're not good, then Dr. Grimm's going to come get you and feed you to her machine. Um, but that's like also like a pretty like that one's pretty good. Like I'm into it. I'm into it as far as like a way to like terrify the shit out of children. Like, yeah, some evil lady doctor like that's it's not even, you know, your typical witch or whatever. It's, you know. Some some evil mad scientist lady, you know, who is yeah feeds you into machine like that's so different than like cooking you herself, you know. Right. Like, like, yeah, like fine, I get it, lady. You live out in the woods. Fat children come to see you. I get it. Like <laughs> you're hungry, make a stew. Fine, but like, what does this machine need to eat people for? Like that's the scary thing. Yeah, but Jones is an independent career woman. She doesn't cook. <laughs> 
She's a stem cell lady. Stem cell? No, stem yeah, academics? Just, just I don't STEM. Know. <laughs> she does roll her own cigarettes, though, so. So, which, add that to the sexy pile. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is kind of like this uh, post-apocalyptic, like, Hansel and Gretel, right? Like, so, yeah. Um, but kind of merging it with, with like a Dr. Frankenstein. It's just fun, like how they're playing with all of these, you know, these are stories that go back hundreds of years, like for us. Right. And they're just, that's kind of like the sandbox they're playing in. The other was the fable of, is it, is it Gollum or Golem? I feel like I keep saying Gollum because of freaking. Lord I've of always heard of it Gollum, but is I, it Gollum? I, I could be wrong. Don't, don't quote me on this. I'm not a literature person. I think it's pronounced both ways. I think you're right. No matter how you say it, go with that. Okay. Now, any of you guys know this sort of like already bringing into it? Otherwise, I'll give us like the quick. Um, it's re- I think it's really interesting for a lot of different reasons. Olivia references it when she talks to Jones, um, that this is the story her father, her creator, used to read to her through the one-way glass. So I kind of went down a rabbit hole looking into it, as I sometimes do. And um, the most famous Gollum poem, well, I mean, actually, what the first one sort of researching it is that like the tale of Adam and Eve is, you know, their creation stories. It's using materials, whether it's clay or a rib or whatever, and then a creator breathing life into something. So sort of like initial research is like Adam and Eve is essentially a golem story. It's a story of a creator fashioning beings out of materials. Um, but the most famous sort of folk tale that perhaps we can assume is the one Dr. Kirshner was reading um, to Olivia. I mean, sort of the interesting, disturbing layer to it is Dr. Kirshner was someone who was in the Nazi regime. Um, and this is a Jewish folktale. So the most famous one is comes from the Czech Republic in Prague, and it involves a rabbi who goes by Judah, what is it, Judah Lo Ben Bezalel, but he also goes by the name Maharal, and he created a golem out of clay from the banks of the river in Prague. He brought it to life through rituals, and then that golem would defend the Prague ghetto from anti-Semitic attacks um, under the rule of of the Holy Roman Emperor, Rudolf II. So it's almost like he kind of fashioned this like little superhero that would protect the Jewish people from pogroms. Um, But then eventually, as often these kind of Frankenstein stories run its course, the creation um, ends up kind of the creator loses control of the creation. And so eventually he has to remove like something from his mouth and immobilizes him. And then the golem falls to pieces. And that's to sort of stop the chaos that the golem um, was kind of wreaking havoc. Um, and he kind of lost control of him. Um, and it's interesting because there were some things that I never even thought about um kind of getting at this like Ubris theme, right? So like a creator that they create something and then they don't think through all of the consequences either for their creation or the world. And some of the examples they gave other than Frankenstein is one that is near and dear to Joe's heart, which is Terminator. I, I see it in the notes. Yeah. yeah, which is Terminator, which I never really thought of that as sort of like a Gollum creation story, but totally. Yeah, I mean, you know, you it, it, it's sort of... 
It's interesting that they would that they would choose that because like on in in the first Terminator movie. Sorry, I'm going to go on like a quick little rant here mm-hmm. um, because you brought up Terminator. Um, uh-huh. That you know uh, the Terminator was just sent back in time um, to to kill Sarah Connor um, to prevent her from having a son who would then sort of like be the resistance in the future. Um, and so I don't know exactly what the original purpose of, of those Terminators were, but then you go into the second movie where you, they basically send back two of them. And one of them is to protect. And one of them is even more advanced and they're definitely not to protect. And so, you know, be, be careful kind of what you create and wish for, I guess, especially don't make robots that are like a bajillion times stronger than you. Like <laughs> how, like, like we, we just need to stop it at Roombas. Like I watch my Roomba like bump into shit, like and fail <laughs> and die on the carpet. And I'm like, cool. That is the level of like AI that I feel safe with. <laughs> well, I mean, and Olivia is like, right. She's even stronger. Like the, you made the messenger super strong. And then Olivia is like the, the super, like even stronger than they were. Right. So she has super strength too. Um, I think it's, you know, they've called Jones Frankenstein. You have drawing a direct parallel between these two scientists, Kirshner and Jones, who had this ubris to either create human beings or create a machine. But either way, those creations are like causing havoc in the natural order. Um, and I think it's funny also, Olivia says to Jones, um, that Cole can't seem to solve the problems he sets out to fix. And he's the other gen. He's the other creation, right? Like of that came as a result of Joan's machine. So they've got like the time machine, Olivia, Cole, and all of them, their presence, no matter the intentions of their creators are fucking everything up. Um, and so it's kind of like, it's really great when you dig into that golem fable. The other thing that I think it um, is interesting is just going to that like Adam and Eve aspect of it. This is, this is a season where we, we, we think a lot about, and we've got episodes named, you know, nature and nurture. And this is a fable about a creator, like literally fashioning a being out of clay, like molding clay, right? It's almost like a metaphor for sort of that nurture part. And sort of this idea that like we are both our DNA and the experiences that shape us. And there's so many characters they explore that with from Olivia and to Hannah and then obviously like to Deacon. Um, Do you guys have any thoughts about that? Um, My only thought was, is both the doctors here are Germans and Terry must really just hate Germans, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) No, but, but, but to be fair, on the flip side of that, we did have, you know, Jones coming into, into Olivia's little like prison ward room and like speaking German to her and then Olivia responding in German and it was all very sexy. So that that takes away from like the Germans are evil because it was sexy talk. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like it's, you know, you got your ups and downs in relationships, you know? Yeah. I mean, I get it, Terry. I hate Nazis too, but man. <laughs> it's all very like Indiana Jones. I feel like, you know, like if we're, we're well, most of us on here, I guess two of us are Gen X. I'm comfortable with that space and sort of my genre. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
if you guys do you guys have any other sort of I mean Joe well I want to get your thoughts on sort of we've you know you guys talk a lot about sort of these ethical one versus the many dilemmas mm-hmm. and we've got a torture we've got a torture scenario in this episode yeah. definitely want to get your thoughts about that you said that way too chipper by the way <laughs> we got we got a thing about up, torture guys. I didn't Listen, feel that. Cece is like against execution, right? She doesn't want you to end the life, but just screwing with the life that, I mean, there's fine. no line there. It's fine. Oh, she loves a good torture. I don't at all, but <laughs> I, I felt just a lot. Think about those bamboo sticks in season one going oh. under some fingernails. Oh, okay, that's oh. gross. That one I it did not. It is super Ooh. gross. I can't Ooh. even. I don't know, though. If you had to choose between a fingernail under, I'm sorry, bamboo under your fingernail or being locked up and eating rats raw for three months, what would you pick? Rats. Probably the rats. Like, at least then, like, I don't know, like, maybe, maybe, I, you know, those three months I could, like, finally, fun- like, fucking finish my fic, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, I could get a lot of shit done, just me and the rats. <laughs> I don't really think yeah, it was like that. The, but- <laughs> uh, it's like when your retirement plan still potentially includes going to prison. So it's just like, you don't really have anything else to do. You can get some stuff done. Yeah, finally some peace and quiet. Uh, I think yeah, don't mess with me. my fingers, man. No, no. no. I like, like I am Joe a baby when I get a hangnail. A, Joe can finally finish a fic in just a room with rats. Like that's that's the <laughs> impetus. <laughs> being it. able that's to like, no, tool. now I'll get shit done. <laughs> don't oh, don't God. don't disparage my process, okay? <laughs> Did you guys have any other sort of like big picture stuff that hit you before we jump in character to character? Uh, the, the, this episode had some like great dramatic irony um, just throughout the whole thing. Um, and like, we can definitely like touch on it as it happens. Um, but there were just some great moments where like, if you've seen the whole show, you're like, ah, mm-hmm. does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, one yeah. of my, one of my favorites that we won't get into just cause we're not doing the Olivia scenes um, is Olivia saying nothing stays in a box forever. there's so many layers right you've got you've got like you know this episode is basically the structure of it is you've got olivia in one cage and then deacon and titan in another um and by the end of the episode deacon's getting out of his box um we know now that we've watched the whole thing that olivia is only in that box because she at that moment is choosing to be Right, yeah, except like, that Jennifer fucking told them. Like that was the whole. Like mm-hmm. when the episode started, Jennifer's like, "She wants to be here. This isn't good." Right. And then, yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? We, I actually had um, that. Why don't we go through those really quickly? Sorry, just we brought those up. That. No, 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 no. Because we're not. This isn't kind of like a traditional going through the episode. We're really kind of focusing on various characters. So, we, um, Beep and I have been calling this sort of like what Ethan called the puzzle from above. So now those things that hit us that now that we've seen the whole thing and the huge one in this episode is you always listen to Jennifer. <laughs> like, so we right, see- like three seasons of this and they still have not learned their goddamn lesson. <laughs> it's true. But seriously, if seasons three and if, if this theme of season three and four isn't listen to Jennifer, then I must be watching a different show. That I'm, <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm sure that's I mean, the she- entire point. She starts the show and ends the show basically telling them truths like, A, don't, she wants to be here. This is bad. And then she ends it by telling Cole, like, no, no, tell him you're sick. Don't go. This is bad. Mm-hmm. Like, 
And she's right. Listen to her. Listen to her. She's not crazy. I start. I kind of get irritated sometimes how much they'll like use that word to describe her, um, like casually, because Ramsey does it in this episode as well. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, crazy. And I'm like, yeah, if you guys would just stop, crazy, right? And think for a moment. Crazy's fucking right, and you need to be listening to her. Mm-hmm. Yep. Especially since Ramsey was like, you know, said, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, not until I get the witness, and I'm like. She's right fucking there, idiot. I know. I bet if you asked Jennifer if she was the witness, Jennifer might even tell you. But no, you're too busy calling her crazy. So, you know, sit your ass down. Right. I mean, the whole time that she's like, right, there's so much that you just want to like head dust because you're like, everyone's like, we have to get the witness. And even Olivia is like, the witness promised me is timeless for us. And you're like, it's you. <laughs> and you're right there. Right. Um, the other really fun clue was Adler telling Jones after they run the test, her blood contains a dormant form of the calivirus. That was our clue that she was the corpse. Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys have any other ones that kind of hit you that were like, oh my God, (laughs) they were clues in plain sight. I mean, there was, there was a thing about, um, I think Jennifer mentioned something about Olivia. um, Like if she smiles at you, like bad news. Um, Mm -hmm. I can't remember the exact quote. And then if you're actually watching that clip, Olivia straight up looks around the world, around the room and just grins at everyone. And you're like, Oh, (laughs) cool. (laughs) (laughs) This this is going to end spectacularly. What could go wrong? If only the characters had access to those montages (laughs) during voiceovers. (laughs) (laughs) Were you guys like at the fridge getting a snack? Like pay attention. Damn. (laughs) Okay, cool. All right. So first up, um, there's not a huge amount of substance, but this is until the very, very end, Ramsey's second to last episode. Um, and there's some work they're doing in here, which is set us, setting us up for sort of the, the tragic next episode of Brothers. Um, for everyone, it's been probably a year since they've seen, or at least close to a year, between um, these like cross, for, for Cole, it's been what, like two and a half years since he's seen Ramsey? Um, yeah. Well, I guess he saw him super briefly at Titan. But I mean, this is like, he's barely had a conversation with him, right? Since he was in 1957 and came back. So in this time that's lapsed, Ramsey has found his son, lost his son under some of the most like horrible circumstances ever. He knows that, or or thinks that he knows that the witness is the son of Cole and Cassie and that he has to kill Cassie, he thinks, basically to save the world. And then he has to go back into that place where all of his friends are and face his brother. And he's carrying this burden of the thing they've been trying to do all along to fix this is that he's going to have to murder one of their own. Well, okay. So here's my question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so like <clears throat> Ramsey is like, you know, I have to kill Cassie or whatever to stop her from, you know, like having the witness. Like, I'm sorry, did she immaculately conceive the witness? Like, fucking kill Cole. Like, I don't this this reeks of sexism. Oh, like go back in time and kill Cole? Yeah, like it's just it it That's his brother, Joe. That's his brother. Yeah, maybe but that's he's right. not time traveling either. <laughs> 
I'm and just she's saying. already pregnant. Like you kind of just well, just, but they're going back to 2007 to kill Cassie before any of this started. Yeah. So Joe, it's Joe. What you're saying is, why didn't Olivia say go back and kill James Cole? Yeah, I mean, granted, that would kind of fuck with the whole show because you know we need <laughs> to ruin the timeline and do the whole thing. Like, fine, I get it. You've set up a system here, but still, I'm just saying. Like, I don't. You know, it takes two to make a baby. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> As it's been explained to me, I'm still a little hazy on the details. It seems weird. <laughs> Egg laying makes way more sense. Also, that's some cold ass shit for Ramsey to go back and then sit and have these conversations and have a moment with Cole, knowing that his end goal here is to go back and kill someone he knows Cole loves, obviously. Yeah, but I mean, you know why I think he's able to do it? And this is what, even though this this partnership kind of really fucked up reunion between Olivia and Ramsey in season three is that it, you know, mines this history between them, which Jones brings up in season one, Olivia is the person that trained Ramsey. I, I think to be able to pull this off, um, right? Like she's the one that was sending him all those materials to read and all those letters and training him in the art of war. And I think part of what allows Ramsey to be this, right? Like with both Olivia and Ramsey, when they're talking to members of Team Splinter, what makes it so good and I think so believable is that there's always these kernels of truth, even when they're lying. Do you know what I mean? Like right. uh, whether it's Olivia seething at Cole that she was left behind, you know, like there's a, I'm sure there's a kernel of truth to that, right? Like, yeah, because I, I always wonder about that scene because I always wonder, like, how much of that is she using to manipulate him, mm-hmm. and how much of that, like, and how much of that is really a core hurt with her with Cole. Like, how was she really upset, or is she mining that to manipulate him, knowing that plays upon his sympathies? Right. But But what makes her such a good villain is because she's not just like doing weird ass grandstanding. Like there's enough truth in it that you're like, fuck, I do believe her. And that's where it gets dangerous. The moment you let your guard down around Olivia. Right. Yeah. Because Cole believed her in that moment. Like he had that worked because you could see it in his face, how terrible he felt leaving that kid. And, and then her coming back in his face years later being like, Hey, I was that kid and here's how it impacted me. This is what it created because you left me there. So Mm -hmm. it totally worked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so with Ramsey, I feel like what he, it is both, he is devastated, right? Like he has lost his son. That is truth. I feel like he also, particularly when he's talking with Jones, uses it to, not quite like gain sympathy, but to like, I don't know, give like bolster what he's trying to do, if that makes sense. Um, the one piece of writing that I really liked is that, you know, when he first comes back and Cole wants to go talk to him. And it's interesting because he'll say in Brothers to Ramsey that he kind of knew, like he had a bad feeling when Ramsey came back, but he just wanted to keep giving him chances. But what Jones says to Cole is, which Ramsey is in there? Grieving father, loyal friend, or the man that spent decades with Olivia. And I I think that's as I think it's as much to the audience as it is to Cole, but I think all three of those things can be true at once. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, because they are. I mean yeah. he is playing all of those roles. Yeah. Um, if we can go to the scene with Jones, um, 
you know, I love that Joan sends herself in there thinking that she can be the one to have the emotional distance. But I, you see that as soon as he brings up the fact that he's lost Sam, Joan's, oh, she does that thing, you know, when she takes her glasses off. And I'm always like, oh, God, she's going to make me cry. But you see that it, like, affects her. And I don't think she's able to be objective either. Do you know what I mean? Like, as soon as he brings up losing a child, he knows exactly. Well, yeah, as soon as with Jones, as soon as you make the comparison to losing a child, because she's the only one who can relate to that with him. And so, yeah, the minute you always bring that up with Jones, because clearly even when Olivia brings up Hannah with Jones, that's, that is the, that's the button you push with Jones that mm-hmm. gets her every time that makes her soft. Mm-hmm. And, and Ramsey knows it too. It's so, so both Olivia and Ramsey use that, that parent button in Jones to push it. And that's when, yeah, that's when you see her walls go down. Yeah. And then he like pushes at her, right? He kind of go like, you got your kid back. And then he has like, it both makes me, it's both sad, but also makes me giggle a little bit when he's like, I lost mine twice. And you're like, damn it, they really put this character fucking through the ringer with his son, right? It's like, I didn't just lose my son once, I lost him twice. And then the the part that is so kind of tragic is like, I'm not afraid of dying because I know I've got it coming to me, not until I get the witness. And I think there's two things to unpack there. The first is, I think that's a statement. I mean, this episode reminds us kind of with that and then also with Cole torturing Olivia and knowing how to torture people. It kind of reminds us these were not, they were not good guys, right? Like, um, and he's kind of ready. You know, he has already said that he's dead already um, at the end of season two. The thing that I now on rewatch that hits me about that line is he will end this series going back knowingly to die after he has beaten the witness. Um, so it's kind of, it's one of those things that I'm like, is that is that just like great the way that line works out now? Um, but you guys know what I'm saying? Like he's going to splinter away at the very end of the series to go die, but he will have finally taken down the witness. But that's not what's going to happen in the next episode. So Jennifer comes in like the Easter bunny. And brings Sam's toys from Meltdown, the little astronaut, and it's a little soldier. Um, And then he says that line, um, what's it say about this place? You've got to be a little bit crazy to be human. It's a really great Jennifer scene. It's really simple. Um, Do you guys have thoughts about it? I just love Jennifer. Like, (laughs) that's that's the whole thought. Um, Mm -hmm. I echo Joe's thought about loving Jennifer. I, yeah, like she just, she, just, she <laughs> hey, look, <laughs> consensus. Um, no, I mean, she's had some just really great lines just this whole episode. I feel like while we are kind of focused on the two plates split spinning of Olivia and, and um, Deacon and their parallel stories, like Jennifer's there, like she's the Peter Falk, like reading the princess bride to us. And we're bitching about the kissing. Um, and not like really paying attention to the whole thing. And like by the end, you know, but she's been there, like, you know, telling us everything. Um, Mm -hmm. that was a terrible analogy, but no, I love that analogy. I want, I want to see Jennifer now in a trench coat and all like Columbo. Oh man. You know that she has it as part of her costume closet. Like you absolutely know that there's a cut scene somewhere of her, like trying to be like, like an old timey spy. Um, But yeah, it it just just Jennifer A plus plus. 
Yeah, when Meg was on, she talked about that her favorite thing about Jennifer was her empathy. And this is one of those, right? Like everyone else is all concerned with the mission and are you lying and what's your agenda and Olivia and she's the only, not even, we don't see it, right? Like Cole mentioned Sam in passing at the end, but he's basically like, you get to shoot the witness because your son died, right? Like the only person that we see go to Ramsey without an agenda or a goal is Jennifer to say that she's sorry that his son died. I mean, she's the heart of the show. Like, she's always the one that represents their humanity. When they start going off the rails, Jennifer's always the one that is there that shows some empathy, that also sees the forest for the trees as far as what it is that they're all living for. And it's love in each other. Like, she's always the one that kind of grounds them to that, which is funny because, you know, she's the, always the one that they consider crazy, but she's the one that grounds them and focuses them sometimes on some of the important stuff, which is love and the people in your lives. So yeah, she's the one and even recognizes that I know no one probably said this to you, but I'm sorry about Sam. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I I know. And that, you know, it's so it's, they've played a lot with sort of these like physical tokens so far in season three that we have that represent the people we love. Um, whether it's the watch or a handkerchief or a pocket watch. And, you know, for Ram- for both the audience and for Ramsey, probably the most we've gotten to know Sam was when he was playing with that little model of the time machine. Um, so it's just kind of like remembering those details. And it's just one of, it seems like this, that when at the end of the show, Cole says, you know, you were the best of us. Like that, it's, it seems like this that like make me think of that. Um, Beep, did you have anything about Jennifer in the scene before we jump to the one with Cole? I think, I mean, there's just a part of her that's so pure. She's been through so much trauma and, you know, of course, yeah, there's always the empathy, especially given um, that she just spent five years alone in a foreign country out of time, you know, thinking that people were coming to look for her and they weren't. And they had those huge fights, you know, last episode. And so, I mean, can she understand the loss of a child? Not directly, but I think she, you know, relates to Ramsey a lot in, in so far as just being on the outside of the group and the mission for so long and so often. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, I, and I think, you know, as much as it tells us about Jennifer, I think it's also an important scene um, for Ramsey because they're setting him up uh, to do something that like as the audience we're going to be like oh my god like he's trying to kill Cassie right and so I think it also humanizes him um, you know as much as it does because you know this is somebody who's having this moment with Jennifer but he's also somebody who's like come up with this ruse or is going along with it with Olivia um, if you guys don't have anything else about that we can just go to sort of like um what we've talked about in the past like all good dramas like to really make it hurt before they kill a character off and so now when we they were like okay we're killing we're killing Ramsey off the next episode we got to have another one last Cole and Ramsey on the rooftop scene um before so now when you watch you're like oh this is the last rooftop scene um Joe, what are those lines that hits you on rewatches? Cole saying, I don't know anymore if there's a way to undo this. All these circles. <laughs> <And> you're like, <laughs> oh. 
Like there's just, I, I wish you could say, I just kind of gently put my forehead into my palm resting <laughs> on the desk. Just like, mm, oh, it hurts. Man. It hurts, but, but, but keep mm. going. <laughs> um, and then, you know, Ramsey's kind of like, you know, one last run, you know, we're done here, right? One last run. And it's like, again, it's, it's tragic. It's tragic if you've watched it before season four, because you're like, this will be their last mission. But now it's kind of like their one last run. And when, and when you listen to how he kind of um, frames it, he's, and there's like, you know, the witness, he's going to be surrounded by the followers, by all of his followers, right? And, and Ramsey's like, okay, but it's one last run, right? It's like you and me. And you're like, well, that's not what's going to happen in the next episode, but it will happen in the series finale. <laughs> like, <it will> be. <laughs> I know that line kills me when you've yeah. seen the whole series because it's both sad because like you say, you know, this is like, okay, one last run. So that means this is the last of them, of, of Ramsey being alive and then being together. And then also it's, no, you do actually have one last run together and everything mm-hmm. happens just as you're describing and it's glorious and I love it and I just want to cry thinking about it. Yes, and you guys, it'll be to the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. You have no idea how great it's going to be, right? I gotta die to a good <laughs> song, brother. <laughs> um, the other line that hit me, particularly after... um it's kind of answering something Cole said. So remember back when they were in season two where there was the mutiny and Ramsey tells Cole, like, you, you know, you don't, you don't have a son. You've never had a family. You don't understand. And Cole said, well, I, I thought you were my family. Um, what Ramsey says to him is whatever the future, you are my family and all of them. And it's just like, man, you guys are really making it hurt before you kill him off. <laughs> it's like answering sort of this, exchange that was like hurtful back in season two where Ramsey was kind of like drawing this line between found family and biological family. And so he's kind of, I I read that as sort of like a, he's, he's trying to make that right. Like what happened between them in season two. Um, But, you know, again, on rewatch, it's like someday he will be sitting across from his son and he will remember Cole, right? Like not at the same Will they kind of be, they won't, will they be at the same time? They won't be, right? No. They'll like. No, they won't be. I have won't questions be. about what their timelines are at the end, but that's for a whole other podcast. Right. Um, <laughs> they they, they yeah, like yeah. They really won't be. So. God, that but, makes it even more sad and yeah. like poignant. Because yeah, the line, especially, yeah, that line gets to me, the whatever the future, you are my family and all of them. Mm-hmm. Like gets to me because yeah their futures may not be in line with each other they may never see each other again but it he it will he will always be his brother mm-hmm. yeah i mean the other thing is when you get to the you know this whole time you think that ramsey has pulled the wool over cole's eyes right and we yeah. and what we will realize at the end of brothers is he hasn't like Cole has figured out, he doesn't know quite what he's up to, but he hasn't trusted him. And so it is one of these final scenes between the two. It's one of their final moments together, really ever. Um, because even as we just said, like the epilogue, they're a lot, they're like adults, they're going to be adults at different times. Um, but they're even in this moment, neither, both of them are holding back different truths 
You know, like right. Cole doesn't actually trust Ramsey and this plan that he's sending them into. And and Ramsey obviously is keeping huge, huge truths from Cole that Cole has no idea about, right? Like about Cole's family that he has no idea about as he's talking about family to him. We will jump to sort of what we're calling Hannah Jones and torture. Um, we're not. <laughs> Hannah so, loves torture. So poetic. <laughs> I really don't. I don't know why I'm saying torture so cheerfully. I know. You're so <laughs> joyous. Like, and torture is coming up, guys. It's going to be great. I think I think we're just really kind of getting into, you know, CeCe's purview. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which, hey, it's your podcast. <laughs> okay. Um, we're not digging in, obviously, into the Olivia scenes, but I think there's some important things to point out because I think Olivia pushes – definitely some buttons with Jones with respect to Hannah, which kind of inform then these torture scenes. Cause Jones is playing it pretty damn cool for a while um, talking to Olivia, but it's when Olivia brings up Hannah, that is when Jones starts to kind of uh, lose it a little bit, or you start to see a little bit of a temper leading up to that, like throwing the doors open and being like Adler fire up the machine. Um, So the questions getting at sort of this nature versus nurture theme that, that Olivia asked Jones is what would you have made Hannah to be? Had you raised her only in losing Hannah? Did you find your true purpose you were never meant to be a mother. And that is for for us. And we know the journey that Jones went on and even deciding whether to have Hannah. Yeah. Man, is that going for the jugular. I mean, Olivia's like no fucking joke. Mm-hmm. Like she cuts and she's mm-hmm. good at it. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, and yet Jones keeps coming back for more. So... <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna put a pin in the sexual tension <laughs> joke. <laughs> you can put a pin in it all you want. It doesn't mean it's not there. Um, I think this is. I mean, now on rewatch, if you think about it, you have they are or will be both mothers, and their mm-hmm. two daughters will be the centerpiece of that episode of daughters, right? And one raised with love, and one raised without. One raised without that purpose, without Jones like shaping her, right? Like it'll be shaped by someone else versus Olivia, Emma to her is all purpose, right? And there's like little time for love. And you're going to have sort of these two mothers facing off with Emma watching when Olivia is torturing Jones, having to watch Hannah die over and over. So I feel like this is sort of like the first, like act one of this sort of like, mother daughter like circle that they're in um especially thinking about the fact that olivia gives the command to herself in the past to have the child do you know what i mean like it's her own creation story um she's obviously going to go about it a different way but like um how fucked up is it that i mean so you have hannah who is raised by you know an adoptive mother um jennifer uh, you know, obviously grew up in love and, you know, as weird as the hyenas and all that sort of stuff was. And then, you know, to have Emma is just this sort of, she know she knew her mother and knew her mother didn't love her. And like, fuck, man, you know, like, that's just, that's rough. Like to be 
so like it's one thing for for Hannah to have these sort of like wild ideas of you know um Dr. Grimm and like disconnected from her own mother and stuff like that because like she never got to know her but then you know she finally does and you know gets to know her as an adult um but I, I almost kind of wish that we had had like a whole like half a season um with Olivia and and her daughter um mm-hmm. just to like even get more of that because it's such like a different and and heartbreaking relationship. Yeah. And all you know, I mean the other and I'm just thinking about this now as you were saying that, but like the other parallel to that is Olivia was raised I mean as far as we can tell without love, right? Like she was mm-hmm. raised in a At box, all. right? Like, that, she was raised like sterilely. Like it's right. not even it's not even that like she was raising um, her daughter, you know, with, with a purpose and, and a single mindedness, like that's one thing, like she still got to like, ex, you know, smell new smells and be in the world. Like, even though it was kind of like, you know, an extended cage, but yeah, like Olivia was raised in an actual fucking box. Like, right, like she was the little, the little monkey baby who like, you know, had a choice between like a robot that like was cold and fed her and like a robot that like was covered in fur, but had no food. Do you, do you remember that like experiment or whatever? No. It's it's this it it was basically like a, a, a just horrible from back when people were allowed to torture animals to be able to like sort of figure out things and the idea was that um, you had this baby monkey and um, there were two sort of quote unquote mother monkey robots one of them was just kind of all metal very um, you know cold and sterile but actually but had food like that was the monkey that like gave you know monkey milk I guess I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was another one that was like made to be like a little bit squishier and warmer, but able to be cuddled with, right? And the baby monkey chose the the emotional one, the cuddling one over food, even though like it, you know, it didn't, it, it couldn't actually like give anything life-giving to this baby monkey, but it just still craved that, you know, connection. Um, yeah. Yeah. Aww. Yeah. Fucked up. But point is like, that's, you know, like, Olivia is a fucking tragic story as much as we like to say, you know, she's this villain and stuff like no, that. Like, I, have, I have a ton of empathy for her. Cause you're like, well, of course she's a horrible, like, yeah, you, right. Exactly. You were raised in like a, half a shipping container in the middle of a warehouse by right. like, a creepy dude. Like, right. And, and you know, I mean, you get, you get, I mean, right. The writing is so elegant in that you can let us know how lonely she was by just that line where she talks about her father telling him that story of Gollum. And then she says, and then I would try and breathe life into my stuffed animals. Right. Because she's alone. And right. She's still and, a kid. Like she was yeah. still, like, even though she's like some super soldier, like blah, 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 DNA, cool stuff. Like she was still a kid at one point. Right. And, and you know, to call Cole out and being like, yeah, you fucking left that kid in that box. Like that's what happens. I'm what happens. Right. Um, and, and what I think, so what is like sort of the interesting parallel I was thinking about is, sorry, no, 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 no. I mean, exactly to what you're saying is somebody who was raised like that, what are the chances that they then would be able to like, to then be a mother, a loving, nurturing mother to Emma? Do you know what I mean? Like, and it's interesting thinking about in these scenes where you've got Deacon confronting his father's legacy and how his father shaped him where his father himself was a victim of abuse 
and you've got right. It's just like well, cycles. Yeah, you become, yeah, yeah. You become whatever it was, you know, your parents and stuff, because that's the only thing you know. That's the only attachment that you have developed. So for Olivia, it was no attachment. So of course, when she had a daughter come along, there was no way she has no tools that she ever learned in her life to become attached to this thing. She was treated like a thing. So in turn, when she has her own daughter, she treats her more like this, this thing, this object that she can shape into whatever her will needs to be. Um, you know, and the same, we can, we can talk shelf the Deacon talk later about oh, it's his dad, but it's the same sort of cycles that happen in, in real life and things like that too. in the traumas and stuff that shape you more often than not, if you are not given the love and tools and attachment that you need, you're going to repeat those similar patterns because that's the only thing that you know. Like there is no other way to break out of it unless someone else comes in and teaches you differently and gives you the tools to do it differently. But Olivia was never given that. So of course, when she has her daughter and comes along, she only knows one way to, to approach it. Right. And, and and not only that, I mean, you've got the father piece of it, but then you have when she, which she describes as the next cycle, just another box. All her mother, you know, like her mother certainly seems like the glimpses we see of Mantis, it's, it is all driven toward purpose, right? And that is then in turn, the way she shapes Emma's life. At, you know, Olivia had a purpose that her mother said, you have a purpose, you're important. And then she gives Emma like, it's all and she, she talks a lot in this episode about purpose or lack of purpose or needing a purpose, right? And so obviously, it was something that shaped her. And so what she what she doesn't give in terms of emotional, physical affection, love to Emma, what she gives her is what her mother gave her, which is a purpose to build the machine, <laughs> to build, you know, to help build Titan and the and the Hartle Hawking state and all of that. She gives her daughter a purpose. That's what her mother gave her. So yeah, it's like these these cycles. Um, that the, you know, this episode is so much more. It, it's even richer on rewatch once we know so much more, sort of about Olivia's backstory and also sort of her future. Um, so sort of her other sort of button pushing is, um, you know, she's trying. She's getting at this. Jones Jones's true identity is not that of a mother, but is, you know, the scientist, the one who loved the purpose that once the daughter was gone, that's what gave her the purpose for her scientific discovery. And then she kind of pokes at another source spot of, you know, Hannah found another mother. Um, and, you know, like it is clear, not only from Barbara Sakawa's performance, but also the way Jones immediately goes from that scene to throwing Olivia into a chair and torturing her. She got to her. Um, do you guys have sort of any thoughts about these? You know, Jones is a pretty formidable character. And so when we see these moments of poking at insecurities, I think they're really interesting. Well, because I think that's Jones's core, like hurt in her is the guilt that she feels for not ever being a mother to Hannah. And, and she probably does, of course, I'm headcanoning this at all, but, but she probably does feel like Jennifer was a better mother to Hannah than she could ever be. Mm. That may be because we know that she was questioning whether or not to be a mother at the very, you know, inception that that the reason why that these moments of manipulation on Olivia's part work is because it's everything that Jones has been internalizing about it. 
like she's mirroring back like all of all of Jones's internal thoughts for sure that hey me losing Hannah actually gave me purpose to accomplish like this amazing scientific feat of time travel and look Hannah was raised by someone who was probably better equipped to be a better mother than than I am so all of these things feed this this core guilt that's inside of her so yeah if I, if I was Jones too I would have immediately thrown Olivia in the chair after that <laughs> because right. she really like she pushed the exact button that has been plaguing like Jones's thoughts as when as soon as Hannah came back in her life Right, especially because it's in, it's not only getting at the the time that she missed out on, but also that they are strangers, and she doesn't know how to. You're right. I mean, they are strangers, and they kind of reaffirmed that in the season premiere of Hannah does not approve of Jones's machine or she all this mission. Um, and and Hannah is like this like post apocalyptic like warrior like you know like goddess, and Jones is a very cerebral person, and they don't. Like in terms of connecting, it's actually interesting at the end of this episode, it's like one of the first times we see them like physically, Hannah being like physically affectionate to her, right? But it's been pretty awkward between them. So I feel like it's not only a past her, but also a like, Jones doesn't know how to be a mother to this grown woman, you know? Okay, so then um, that takes us to the torture scenes. Um I love that you you had Olivia drawing this parallel between she is Dr. Kirshner's creation and the and the metal the machine is Jones's creation. So now Jones is going to use her creation to torture <laughs> Dr. Kirshner's creation. Um, and the reason why Olivia can withstand it is because she is this like super like genetically manipulated creation in her own right and it's also super fucked up that we stop and think about what splintering which we say all the time like <laughs> actually means <laughs> you're just like oh god yikes <laughs> i think i do i do think it's i don't know if interesting is the right word for it but the fact that like you know we talk about jones being this sort of like boss bitch or whatever like not taking shit from anyone and like olivia could just play her mm-hmm. like push those buttons, get her to throw her, you know, into, into the, um, into the machine and stuff like that. And then, you know, like finding out later that obviously she was willing to do whatever the fuck it took. So even playing James Cole into getting, you know, going along with his torture and all that sort of stuff, like it's, it's really kind of, I I love sort of the way that it all came together at the end of the episode to be like, Oh, Olivia played all of them. Mm -hmm. Like in addition to her super strength, she's also got super smarts. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just I, I I like that, and you know, just like the laughing as she was being splintered over and over and over, like blood cut, like it was just Ugh. perfect. I loved I loved when just like she just spit out all that blood. It was great, right? And yeah, and and not only that, but it's like it both for the other characters in the room, super as uncomfortable. Well, yeah, and for the audience, you're watching. We are reminded of. You know, when we first met Jones, only a few episodes in, we heard about the lengths and saw the photographs, mm-hmm. right? And and now we love her, right? And we know her. But, but it's reminding us that, like, Jones is yeah. not cuddly. Well, she's what, – what any uh, – here's the thing. It's like, these are our heroes, right? But, like, whether it's Jones or Cole – they're going to do things that should, even if it's Olivia, should make us feel uncomfortable, right? They're torturing someone. Mm-hmm. 
And Jones, uh, Joe, did you have any sort of, um, you know, this is kind of a, is any means necessary if it's going to save 7 billion people, right? Like torture one person, save 7 billion people. Um, Hannah obviously thinks this is not the way. It's never justified. Did you have sort of any thoughts? You guys dig into this a lot on your pod. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's. I guess instead of a trolley, it is a... Uh, the, the time splintering machine, um, you know, that's going to hit a bunch of people. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's one that we, that we get into quite a bit and it's, um, it's interesting because we also sometimes talk about um, like partialism, um, you know, in terms of ethical decisions, which is, you know, the relationship that you have with someone um, is what sort of can influence the way that you might view that situation. Mm-hmm. Um and you know Olivia doesn't have anyone like there's no one there to 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 have a personal relationship with her i will include an asterisk on that obviously um <laughs> with my with my jones feelings but like you know in this moment um but you know we have someone like Hannah who just has you know just an absolute morality about her um when it comes to this and i i'd be really curious how much that has to do with the fact that like she's been raised through the apocalypse like she was raised after the plague. She doesn't know what billions of billions of people even means. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, so for her, you know, she is seeing torture right here. Everyone she knows is alive and is, you know, behind her and stuff like that. So what does torturing this one person do for these hypothetical people that she's never met? Um, you know, she just sees it as this one thing is morally indefensible to to then torture someone, which is, I, I'm I'm a little bit, and and maybe I'm misremembering, but like I'm pretty sure that we didn't get Hannah's take on, say, um, Cole's torture, which in some ways I view as far worse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like which is weird because you because we talked about the bamboo under the fingernails earlier, and I definitely would have taken the rats. But like if we're if we're just talking about you know three months of psychological torture mm-hmm. over you know what was essentially a minute of extreme having your body pulled apart and put back together over and over and over in a long enough with a long enough latency latency that you actually feel it. Um, it's, I'd, I'd really be sort of curious that on, on Hannah's take, if she had known what James was about to do. Right. I mean, she draws this, Hannah draws this interesting distinction where she's like, it's a warrior versus a warrior versus something that's barbaric, which is, you know, uh, kind of it, right? Like she's a warrior. If it's a fair fight, mm-hmm. right? I think that's what she's getting at, right? Like one yeah. thing is to kill someone in combat. Another thing is when you treat someone that you have like in your custody. And to, I mean, to be honest, like these are rules we have in the real world as yeah. well, right? So like Hannah is actually like voicing something kind of right, fine, right? Well, yeah, or at <laughs> least are the rules well of engagement. Uh, for some people, um, but yeah, should be, but yeah. So I mean, what she's articulating is sort of like they're using a shorthand for it, but yeah, like if, if you're, if you're fighting somebody like fair and square on the battlefield, right. Then like, that's one thing. But if you're torturing someone that can't, as far as we think, defend themselves, right? We Olivia probably could have gotten out of the situation if she wanted to, as right. we sort of in the season finale. But um, right, she's like she's pointing that out, and Jones is saying to her, like, "This is the greater good." And what Hannah zeroes in on, it's not just that she has a moral objection to it; she knows her mother well enough to say this is about revenge, and and Hannah says it's about losing me 
which, you know, in part, right, like Olivia's part of the army of the 12 monkeys, all like, right, and Jones's mind, this is all connected, right? And she lost, whether she thought all those years that her daughter was dead, or she lost all that time with her daughter, right? Like, this is all connected. But it's also an emotional response to all the buttons Olivia was pushing, right? Like, it's not like when Olivia showed up, Jones threw her in that chair to torture her. No, it, it, took, was only- it took Olivia nudging her enough to like right. provoke her into that, which right again, I have to wonder how much of this was, you know, according to her plan. Yeah. Well, this whole season, she sits in that facility and pokes at every, right. She's poking at all of the connections, everyone's insecurities, right. Whether it's Deacon, she messes with Jennifer, she messes with Joan, she messes with Cole. Right. And she's like chipping away at Team Splinter and all of those ways, almost like, you know, there's part of this whole setup that kind of reminds me of like Silence of the Lambs, where she's the one in this cage, and yet she always feels like she has a psychological advantage <laughs> over everyone that she's talking to. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, oh, that, that, no, she is absolutely Hannibal Lecter in this. She's Hannibal Lecter. You know what else it reminds me of, Joe? Joe hmm. will only understand this yeah. reference <laughs> the Yoko factor in um, Buffy. Season yes. Four. Yes. <laughs> All of our Buffy fans will will know that eventually. CC will get there. Ooh, is it in season four? It is. Oh, it's in season four, but it's God. called the Yoko Factor, referencing like Yoko Ono being like the impetus the one who breaks them up. The, yeah, breaks up the Beatles, sort of thing. Yeah. And yeah, there's the character who who jabs at all of the other characters insecurities and tries to split them apart in order for like the big bad plan to be enacted. Yes. Yeah. Quite enjoyable. If someone named Tina would, you know, watch it. <laughs> I'm on it. I'm on season four. It's been like a hundred episodes so far. <laughs> um, the other, so what I think also it's, it's a really small moment, but did you guys notice how Han- All right. So, Hannah is watching her biological mother torture someone standing next to the younger version of her adopted mother, right? So there was all this discussion between Olivia and and Jones about, well, Hannah found herself another mother. Obviously, the woman, as, as Hannah knew her, that raised her is dead, but she's there next to the younger version of Jennifer. <laughs> so it was just kind of like on this watch, I'm like, oh God, right now she's standing next to the person that Olivia met, but it's this younger version of her. And I thought it was interesting how Jennifer, you know, like the, she's a primary, she's attracted to the machine in, in, in a way that nobody else is. And it, like it's a being, right? She calls her like, hello, old girl. And she's like, the machine is hurting. She doesn't like this. Mm-hmm. Talking about the machine. Did you guys have any thoughts about that? I mean, it, it would kind of it kind of makes sense. Like if you if 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 we look at Jennifer having this connection with time, um, you know, why wouldn't she have a connection to the vehicle of time then as well? Like this one thing that like is what let all of this happen. Um, it's sweet. Yeah. Yeah, well, in I mean, fact, the show itself has made time a character in essence mm-hmm. by the end by saying, oh, it like chose this path for it decided to give you something, Cole. Like, so obviously, at least for Jennifer, it is its own entity. Like, that's it's something that has feelings and thoughts and can change their lives. So, yeah, to her, that's totally 
like a real thing that you should be respecting and she can feel it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the other part that I thought was interesting as, as much as Hannah, or, or maybe this is sort of goes to what she tells Jones in a bit about her fear, rather than being worried about being good, she feared being bad. She obviously is very emotional watching her mother do this. She says it's awful. They called her Dr. Grimm. But she has an emotional response where she storms into that room, holds a knife to Lasky's throat, and is like, you know, this is not the way. But then it's almost like she's taken aback at her own violence. Like she has this moment of being like, holy shit, I'm holding a knife to Lasky's throat. Right? Like poor Lasky. <laughs> like, but do you know what? Did you guys like catch that like small moment? It's like, it's she let her emotions take over. And then all of a sudden she has to pull herself back. Cause she's about to do something to be like, what was I about to do? Um, I don't know if you guys had any thoughts about that. I think it's kind of, I mean, it's yeah, like, like, Hey, I'm about to murder a guy to keep you from torturing someone. Right. Like this moment of, God, this is super fucked up. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. And, but you see it on her face. It registers like, Oh wait, Jesus, this is all wrong. Like this right? is not solving anything. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Poor Lasky's like, I've already died twice. <laughs> Can you not? For fuck's sake. <laughs> um, so then that, that you know, the, Hannah and Jones like go off and have their conversation. So that sets up for, you know, for all of the critique that James Cole gets about not coming up with a plan, this is a fucking stone cold plan that he comes up with. It is frankly a little bit chilling. And I think it's interesting. I loved it. Like, I know dark coal. You're like, cause, cause the first time you watch it, you're like, what the fuck is even happening? And then when it gets revealed, like, you know, 10 seconds later, you're like, Oh, that was uh-huh. dark. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> right. They have you think he's being, you know, he's like, you know, Hannah's right. This is not the way. And you, you, th- I've you got think- a worse plan. Right. Cause they had him watching it and he looks like he's, you think it's that he's uncomfortable. And really it's when he's thinking, it's like, nah, this isn't the way to do it. Like this is not and- going to work. Yeah. She doesn't care about. I know. Honestly, pain. it excited me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I feel a little wrong about like, dude, James Cole's pretty hot when he's the stone cold. That, that was a little sexy. I have to admit <laughs> Because yeah, the whole time you're like, oh, he's, he's it's not sitting right with him. He feels so bad. He's gonna like no, it's not you know, sitting right because they're doing it terribly. Like yeah, he's, he's just like, like yeah, this just it's a badly awful. done job. <laughs> it's like this, no, she, she needs to eat eat rats in the dark for a while. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's the thing. She yeah. wasn't eating the rats. That's how she killed them. Like, did you notice? Like, it, it's not like there were like rat skeletons. She like took a bite out to like kill them. Um, and so I, I mean, maybe she ate them a little bit, but like, I would think that like, you know, we would have seen more, um, uh, carcasses, carcasses. Yeah. Like that we would have, that it wouldn't have just been like a chunk taken out, which just makes me think so that she like, she was just like killing rats by just biting them and just throwing them across the room. Right. Like, which I also kind just- of have to wonder, like, maybe she was thirsty. Like maybe she was that's drinking rats. I was wondering. Yeah. Like that's where your, that's where your fluids come from. Right. I mean, I, you I, mean know. I wouldn't put it past her. She's pale. She's sexy. She like is super strong. She lives forever. Like convince me that Olivia is not a vampire. Olivia is a vampire. You have, you have now, that's it. It's done. You know, Listen, I find vampires sexy. Hundreds and thousands of years through time. Um, 
<laughs> you know, sexy, we've established, um, super strong, pale, um, hypnotizing voice. Uh, it all checks out. And yeah. and listen, the whole eating rats for blood is like, that's a total vampire Th- trope. Like That is 100% interview with a vampire. She is Louie. Yep. Oh, oh wait, does that make Jones Lestat? <laughs> anyway, sorry, we're getting... We're, <laughs> We're, we're getting off track. I love it. Listen, I mean, if if Terry Metalis is going to have l- the uh, last American vampire, then I think we need Allison Down <laughs> coming on as like a cameo as a vampire. God, she would be such a good vampire. She would. Oh my God. This is I my know. wish list. Mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry. I'm just going to go off for a minute here. No, you're going to do that at the end. That's what we're waiting for. Um <laughs> No, so I mean, I do. So if you were not going, you know, we didn't go into all the Olivia scenes, but when Cole went to go talk to her and she's just fucking with him, right? She's like, you know, the upper hand doesn't suit you. It is kind of like you find yourself fist pumping because you're like, Cole got the upper hand on Olivia, even though it's super fucked up. Do you know what I mean? Like, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be, but I kind of did. Um, But also, this reveal of this tragic, connection that the two of them have that he realizes like oh my god like i left this little girl behind and then she ended up in like continuing to be in the clutches of the army of the 12 monkeys it he takes that knowledge and he wields it like as a weapon and he tortures her with it and it is particularly on rewatch knowing that cole is going to go on this pretty dark journey when he finds out thinking that his son is the witness and think, you know, well, if he is bad, then it, then it came from me. I think it's a really great setup to all of that because when he takes Jones, you know, he pops back in the chair and uh, anytime Jones says Scheiser, it like makes me so happy. I love when she says like, she's swearing in German and she's like, what did you do? And he's taking her down the stairways and he's basically like, you're doing it wrong. People don't break when they feel pain. They break when they're afraid. And he explains how he and Ramsey used to torture people like for food. And you're like, man, right? Like Ramsey and Cole, it takes you back. They're like, dude, they were not good dudes when we met them. And we're going to be confronted, you know, with that through Ethan's eyes in masks when he finds his father, like as a scavenger that mugs and kills people like for food. So it's just really kind of subtle groundwork that now I really like, I'm like, ah, this is like, you're reminding us that like, you know, James Cole, he may be one of the heroes of the story, but like, he's got a pretty unsavory past. Let me ask you guys, did you guys all, everyone fall for that this torture actually worked and they broke Olivia? I mean, on first watch, absolutely. Yeah. Like, because we, I didn't have any reason not to. And then as you keep watching, you're like, oh, fuck. Jennifer was right. Mm-hmm. I mean, if there was a way to get to her, it would be this. Yeah. She's just kind of above it all or below it all somewhere like, away she from sold all it. it. Like Olivia fucking sold it too. Like the way that she looked when they opened the door and she was like crouching in the corner. Like you saw like the shaft of light on her. Like she's crying. There's like rat carcasses everywhere. Like you bought it. Absolutely. Because, you know, you empathize in that moment being like, well, fuck yeah. Being locked away in a dark basement room for three months is probably that would break me of course that's gonna break her but you know what to be honest like that part specifically may have been real yeah that's my question Mm -hmm. like right this didn't cause her to actually break like i'm sure she was like miserable freaked out having ptsd trauma up in there yeah it just it doesn't and that's that also comes 
back to a lot of, you know, what they say in the real world, as far as like why some of this stuff is not allowed is because torture so often doesn't yield good information. Right. You're just willing to tell people whatever the fuck to make it stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I wondered, you know, Olivia is such a good actress and we will realize how good at the end of this season when we, you know, when a deacon say it was just all a long con. Um, But I don't know. Maybe I, I don't know. Maybe I'm naive. I, I thought that there's still a piece of that that was a horror for her. So like they didn't actually break her because all she's, you know, she got what she wanted, which was them to take her information, right? Like it was all to get them to trust her and then do what she wants them to do. So she didn't obviously actually break. I don't know. I thought that there was a piece of, or maybe she's just like, the consummate actress and like, like them, we only see what she wants us to see. I don't know. Um, did you, I, yeah, I thought there, I, did you guys think there was a piece of it that BB you did like Amy and Joe, do you think there was a piece of it that was real? Yeah, I totally agree with beep that. Yeah. She probably was actually re-traumatized and it probably did actually work, but she was so driven by her purpose and the mission Mm-hmm. That she fought through it because, I mean, she's lived through trauma her entire life that she just kind of she has this ability to marginalize it, you know, because her own brother, like, you know, traumatized her. She relives all these kind of horrible traumas all throughout. And she has this way of using it to, like, build herself up, marginalize that, put it to the side and still be driven by the purpose. Like she's so mission driven, more so than even Jones, that, yeah, she I totally believe she was trauma re-traumatized by all that and still was just like, yep, but I'm also getting this done as well. Mm-hmm. It's not taking me out of what I need to do. Right. I mean, because what Ramsey, what we see at the end of the episode, Ramsey's like, it's going to hurt. And she's like, I'll manage. And so whether it was the physical pain when she was sitting in the chair or the emotional pain of being in that locked room, it's not that it didn't hurt. Right. Like, so we may be seeing an effect that is real. It just didn't actually break her the way we thought it did on first watch. Honestly, in her twisted way, it may have actually reinforced her mission because it just proves that these people are as bad as she is. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like it actually like strengthened her resolve. Yep. Yeah. Because they're the bad guys, she's the good guy. Because that's ultimately what she thinks. That's what most villains think in their stories. Like, from their perspective, they're doing the right thing. So in her mind, like, she's she's doing the right thing ultimately in the end. So to her, this just proves that she needs to stop these people. She needs to go on with her mission, that it's correct. Because who wants to save this mm-hmm. if this is what they do? we are all much better off in the red forest. So yeah, I think it, in part it, it strengthened her resolve to actually stay focused. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good place to kind of tie it back to Jones and Hannah, because we're going to watch Jones tending to, <laughs> we're going to dig into this, but tending to Jones's wounds. Um, Olivia's really- wounds. I'm sorry. Right. Jones tending to Olivia's wounds. Sorry. Yeah. I know we need to be, yeah. <laughs> we need to be clear on that really tenderly. And it's, you know, we, we talked, we t- already kind of went through sort of Hannah describing that it was this fable of this horror story of her mother, not knowing it was her mother that shaped her to be frightened from being bad. 
And then she leans in and it's kind of, you know, other than when her mother was being ripped apart at the end of season two um, by the Red Storms and Hannah called her mother. um, This is really kind of the first, I think, tender moment between Hannah and Jones. Jones is kind of emotional, right? Like kind of holding back tears and Hannah kind of like touches her shoulder and leans in and is like, I know that's not who you are. And when she, it then cuts to Jones tending to Olivia. And so obviously not only like this whole experience, but Hannah's words have this profound effect on, on Jones who then turns and tends to Olivia. Joe, is this a good spot? Um, (laughs) Talk about (laughs) all of the Olivia and Jones, both this scene and the cigarette scene. Um, Yeah, no, that's all right. Let's do it. Let's do this. And, and, you know, I trust Amy to be able to, uh, to also chime in um, where, where sort of needed. Um, Let's see here. I'm looking through my notes. I agree. That's all I'm going to be saying. (laughs) I agree. I agree with Joe. So, so rewinding just a tiny bit, like before the torture scene and stuff like that, when we just kind of got Olivia and Jones sort of circling each other, um, you know, in the cage. Um, and I think it's, uh, Olivia says to Jones, women like us prefer the storm to the calm before it. (laughs) Um, I don't, I mean, like, I know that I'm viewing this through shipper goggles, um, but that was erotic, Olivia. Like that was just, that, that was, that was a sexy thing to say to someone. Um, maybe I'm the only one seeing it that way. Um, but then, you know, they say that and it's sort of like her opening flirt, but because they're two weirdos, like that's the way that they flirt. Um, and then you get to see, uh, you know, as, as Jones approaches the cage and Olivia approaches the the cage as well to get closer to Jones and they sort of like parallel pace with each other, um, sort of around this round cage or whatever before that they then, um, you know, share a cigarette, which again, very intimate, um, and sharing a cigarette, uh, you know, drawing attention to, to hands. And then we also get attention drawn to hands when, um, when, uh, Jones patches is, is, you know, actually kind of doing some wound tending, which I have been told is, is a very tropey thing. Mm-hmm. Um, wait, but also absolutely. the cigarette, but also yeah. the, the cigarette is very, doesn't Jones hold the cigarette in her mouth? light it and then hand it like to Olivia who then puts it like it it's Mm -hmm. very intimate it is not just like holding the cigarette in her hand holding her cigarette and lighting it it goes from Jones's mouth to her mouth they've basically kissed is what I'm saying (laughs) yes (laughs) like that's not how I would like bomb a cigarette from like a male friend who is not my husband in college. <laughs> I think he probably would have been like, what the fuck? Well, I mean, like, it was like, they're setting up, like, it's very small moments. And I get that, like, and I get like why they didn't go there with it and stuff like that. Like it would have been, you know, but, but it's there, like the little nuggets of this sort of romance. I don't, I don't like, I don't know what word to use for it because it's so fucked up. Um, but it's there. It's, like, it's sexual tension. It's a yeah. lot of sexual tension. Did you listen? Did you listen? Um, so, Joe, I don't know if you had a chance. So we asked, this came up what, the last time Tara Metalis was on the pod, and we mm-hmm. ended up talking about Jones and Olivia, and that, you know, Olivia obviously is like, super, super messed up, right? Like not, <laughs> not only how she was raised, but her DNA, but that if she had a sexuality, it was Jones. <laughs> and it was like, 
acknowledging that they were definitely playing with this, this dynamic and kind of like how far, how far to push it. And so like, I mean, cause I, I know I remember you like, texting me about this and uh, in all caps, freaking <laughs> out, like shouting vindication because like, well, and I will make note of this for maybe, maybe you guys have any good, you know, authors who listen to this podcast or whatever. There are zero, zero Olivia and Jones fix on AO3. Like I'm not even talking about like zero explicit ones. I mean, zero in at all, like there are none. And that just blows my mind because it's such like, it would be such just a rich sort of great friends to enemies, you know, what or enemies to friends, to, but not even friends. Like they just, they hate each other, but they understand each other. I think on a level that, um, you know, other characters don't necessarily. Well, yeah, um, and it's funny as you, when you pointed out that line, women like us prefer, prefer the storm to the calm before it. The contrast I think is really interesting is when Cole goes in to talk to Olivia She's like, you imagine that we're equals. You are an annoyance, right? She does not, when she's dealing with Cole, she does not think that they are on equal, equal footing. With Jones, she says, when women like us, that means even if they are adversaries, she considers Jones her equal. Yeah, there's so, like, yes. there's this respect that's there. And, mm-hmm. and I think- And it's sexy. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Sexy um, respect. <laughs> and like, and we, we have this moment, you know, it, fast forwarding a little bit to once they, once we do get this, this, you know, tenderness and wound tending from, um, from Jones with, you know, Olivia. And there's this shot of Olivia. She kind of looks at Jones and I think it's this moment, or, you know, at least I read it as this sort of moment of, yeah, while Olivia can't be can't love and can't be sexual and can't like have all of that because she has all of this other like weird trauma and mission and stuff like that. There was definitely just a moment I think in when she's receiving this tenderness from Jones that she never received through her entire life. Um, You know, and to have someone that she views as an adversary, but also as an equal, someone that she respects to then show her this kindness. I think that it, I think that it, despite herself had a very profound effect on her. Now, I don't think it was enough obviously to sort of redeem Olivia and make her, you know, switch sides at all. She's still very mission oriented, but I think I think that there was definitely some some bonding that happened there because we we come back to that. We come back to we come back to their hands. Let me let me be very gay about that. Um we come back to their hands. I think in what season season 4 when Jones is in Titan and her hand is shaking. You know, and and we see a very close shot of of Olivia, like you know, with her crazy witness weird face thing going on. You know, but she still has this moment of they're back to being these two equals as she like very gently sort of reaches out and sort of you know holds holds Jones's hand. You know, like wondering like you know are you know are you okay? Mm-hmm. Um, that was, I mean, it, you know, they're they knew what they were doing. Oh yeah, yeah, and in the in the season finale, um, went right before she is it right before she stabs Jones, and Jones is basically like I think Jones is like what is she saying? She's like I should have known or something like that, and and Olivia puts her hand like caresses her face, 
right? And I think calls her Katarina, right? I mean, face touching. That is a non-romantic Yeah. Yeah. And it's like this really, and it's fucked up because she's about to stab her, but it's this really tender moment. That's also sexy. Yeah. (laughs) 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 But like, yeah, it's the... I I mean, uh, Jones is the only person we ever see Olivia be tender with or receive a Not with her daughter, not with, you know, any of her followers, not with her brother. We saw, we saw like, I mean, like contrast that to, um, is it 40? Yeah. 45 RPM when she's, when she's like Olivia in her twenties and she ran away and she's dance, you know, she runs away with that other woman and there's kind of that moment where they're dancing together but then on a dime, she snaps that woman's neck. And they mm-hmm. kind of give you the fake out where you think Mantis did it. Um, or mm-hmm. the way she seeks out to conceive a child is a purely transactional, like, yeah. okay, then I'm going to be a prostitute and it's going to be a transaction and then I will get pregnant, right? It is not seeking, I mean, I don't even know if it's seeking pleasure, right? But it's just like, let's just get this done. This right? is how you make a baby. This is what we're doing. Right. And so yep. the only time we ever see her, you know, receive or give any affection and just be like for a split second, like a human being is with Jones. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah. It's, it's like, and it, that, that kind of a thing, like, and I know, and again, like, I know that there were way too many plates spinning for them to be able to really explore that. And, you know, I think when, when we were texting about it or whatever, you know, it, it it made sense in a lot of ways that that Olivia wouldn't let herself explore that as well. Like I think that that is a very um, you know important aspect of her character that she is so mission driven. But to have her sort of ever so slightly put off balance, mm-hmm. I think was just like enough. Like of course I want more, but like this was enough enough to be like, hey, this is you know uh, that's Olivia's humanity. In, in any other like world where she had been raised, not in a fucking box by a crazy person. And, you know, I mean, the same could be said for Jones, like, you know, who Jones ended up being, you know, was a product of, you know, decades of all this other fucked up shit. Um, mm-hmm. So them, them to sort of find these little moments of understanding and, and intimacy with one another, I think was just, uh, I found it very powerful. Yeah. Well, I we mean- all know that human contact is like one of the ways like that's, that's, truly important for for humans that we have that touch that human contact with people and when in olivia's entire background has she had any human contact that was gentle or even loving until the moment like of the wound tending because the thing about that wound tending scene too is jones was not really at that point in it jones wasn't doing it as any sort of manipulation she actually had was feeling bad with everything mm-hmm. going on and and you know that it's this, healing this for the both of where them. they feel like yeah where it was healing to her where she's feeling like okay this is this is i i want to make this right somehow so i'm going to tend the wounds that that i'm a part of i've caused some of this and so it's the first time that not only is olivia getting some sort of human contact with someone and someone she respects obviously but it's also not a manipulative sort of connection. Like it's, it's human contact that's tender and loving. It's intention behind it is, is innocent in that regard. She's never had that. So yeah, there's that part of her that is probably like 
flinching a bit because that's so foreign and she doesn't know how to handle it. Well, because I don't, I, I, not that I think of her as an asexual character, obviously, but, um, but in a way she is, was raised in such a sterile environment. How can she not think of sexuality in that way that she doesn't take those cues of human contact and tenderness in, in the ways, you know, like that, that are loving, but is it's that moment, I think, that kind of awakes that humanity or that potential of, oh, this is what this could feel like. Oh, this is how other like people interact with each other. Mm-hmm. She's never had that. No, I was saying like it's the same episode that she told us how even that like ritual of a parent reading to a child at night is something that was done to her through glass. <laughs> it's just like so that is so brutal. And then you end the episode with Jones, like tending to her wounds. Right. Like, and so, yeah, I mean, and even if you think about like her mother, her, the whole hairbrushing thing that came from her mother, that was wrapped up in manipulation and being told purpose and all of that, which Olivia then obviously used on other people. Right. Like, so yeah, I think this is, they is a moment where both their guards are down, even though Olivia obviously is still has the long con or multiple cons in play. The one with Ramsey and her long-term one, it does feel like this genuine moment of connection. I, I It really speaks to sort of both of their characters, both of their characters' strengths are, is compartmentalization. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them, that's what they're, that's what they do. Like characters who don't compartmentalize Ramsey, like, it just, you know, like, mm-hmm. and so to have these two characters who are still enemies, who are still distrustful of each other, all of that to still be able to share that moment of like, you know, yeah, human connection. Like that's, it was, it was good. It was real nice. It was real nice. Then it all goes to shit, but whatever. That's, that's, <laughs> I think, that's just the show. I think, of, <laughs> I think of them like enemies, like Magneto and, and Professor X. Like, right, where, where like, it's they like still they're enemies, they're always though. opposing size. Yeah, but there's this respect and and kind of a genuine love kind of there could have been a love that built between them because of that mutual respect that they have for each other. Or because or they're basically good, the opposite sides of a coin. Or mm-hmm. or uh, good omens. Um, you know, where you have, you know, Oh, well, a, yes. Yes, uh, you know, a demon and an angel who I mean, that was pretty overtly gay. Um, like they were yes. pretty obviously in love with each other. But yeah, like this sort of, you know, these two sides of 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 the same coin and wound tending and cigarettes and face touching and hand holding like it's I don't make the rules it's like <laughs> that's romance yeah those are romantic tropes it is known it is known. yeah Cold well stuff. I mean they're romantic tropes that they've used with Cole and Cassie in the show hand holding hands close up on hands absolutely mm-hmm. wound tending right mm-hmm. Abs- yeah I mean it's not just like romantic tropes out there it's in the romantic trope toolbox of the show and then they use two of them <laughs> in an episode with Jones and Olivia and thus and I'm not li- supposed to find that gay come on <laughs> Ah, uh, Jolivia was born. Um, <laughs> all right, that brings us to Deacon. They made us wait, looking back on it, three episodes to even find out whether or not he was alive. <laughs> Which yeah, I know, what, right? <laughs> what assholes, honestly. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, um, this. If you step back and you think about a lot of other um, 
genre and sci-fi shows or just like frankly a lot of other dramas they let one character talk basically to himself for multiple scenes oh and that's almost what he does the entire episode and looking back on it it's like so important to understanding like who deacon is and i don't think a lot of shows let care like let characters have these kinds of moments. I, I Particularly not for a character that isn't a main protagonist here. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I can see them doing that for, you know, Cole or Cassie in this kind of story. But the fact that they're doing it for a character that if you remember in season one, we start off with is like this side bad guy that really doesn't have a lot to do with the overall plot of saving the world. He's just this side annoyance that, oh, that dick who thinks he runs things out in the apocalypse. Um, but they built him to be this character of such importance that they give him this character moment in which he does this whole scene with himself, playing two different characters, mind you. And right. yeah, and then that's and that's it. Like they they let that and he's basically a secondary character within the story, but they they begin to make him more important. Right. And I th- I think looking back on it It's this episode as much as I've like, at least for me, um, you know, in the, in the first season, he was like sort of a charismatic antagonist. And the second season, you kind of realize there was more to him. um, And he provided a lot of comic relief. And I like, you know, I was always happy when he was on my screen, but I feel like this is the episode where I like, It'll sound silly to say because he's fictional and I'm a human. I'm not. (laughs) But I feel like I, you know, you have those episodes where you feel like you bonded with a character. And I I came away from this episode way more invested in understanding Deacon than I ever have been before. And I I mean, I think presumably that was the point. But it's. Yeah. But you have to, you like a lot of shows try and do this. Um, Mm -hmm. they try and set up the antagonist and then bring you around on them. And, and different shows have like varying degrees of success with that. I think Deacon is like someday when they're teaching, like how to do this, like, this is how you do it. Right. And this is like, I think a, a critical step along that journey and is like to that, that is going to end with us like weeping when he dies and cheering when he comes back. Right. And I think it's right. These intimate moments with him where we see him at his physically his worst, confronting his worst demons, right? And it's just us and him and a figment of his imagination. Yeah, once you separate him and you don't like learn from him based off of his interaction with the other characters in the story. Mm -hmm. and, And you separate him and you learn from him basically through him and his own backstory and trauma and focus on that i mean obviously deacon is someone who imprinted on me immediately even when he was the asshole character in season one but i can understand how like only because i i recognized this character and i knew that this moment was coming you know of course we had to wait till season three that i'm like they are going to give him a backstory that's going to make everyone not just love him because i think a lot of the comedy approach that they were doing in season two was making him a character that, Oh, I love it. When he's on screen, he comes mm-hmm. on, he, you know, choose the scenery. Um, he like, he's great and has these great one-liners, but this was a moment where now they like humanize him 
they give him a fuller, richer story. They tell this backstory and they help you understand like, okay, now we know why he was the asshole here. Now we know why he uses comedy to diffuse like tense situations because we like, we get to live in this whole, and it's not just him re- like reliving his trauma with his father. Like he is like reflecting, like he's projecting who he thinks he is of himself Mm-hmm. onto this memory of his father. So, and that part of it is just so well done because you really get a sense of who he is and what he's been through and why he's made the choices that he he's made. Joe or Beep, did you guys have any thoughts before we dig into it? Just kind of big picture thoughts? Um, nothing big picture. I have one very specific thing that I wanted to call out during his conversation with his quote, quote unquote dad, but I'll save that. Okay. Um, how about oh, you? Oh, but be- also, I'm sorry, but I also no, want to be it. the annoying, the annoying Buffy asshole who has Ooh, to draw comparisons Buffy. always. Go on. But it's like Deacon obviously is the spike, and this episode for Deacon is kind of like Spike's fool for love. Like, hey, here's mm-hmm. this guy who goes from antagonist to comic relief, and then all of a sudden to someone in which, okay, we're going to get a deep dive into who this person is, both before he became a vampire and then after and then the same with deacon we get we get a picture of like who he was before this child and stuff before uh you know the virus hit and then who he became after anyway that's right you know um, my feeling all roads lead to buffy like it's just (laughs) all roads do lead to buffy and i bring it up every time i come on the pod (laughs) but it's true You're not the only one. <laughs> we get a lot of Buffy no, on I'm here. No, I'm not. <laughs> Beep, did you have any big picture thoughts? Spike is my favorite, and I love Deacon. <laughs> Sp- I'm waiting. I, I'm getting. I'm really impatient. I'm ready for Spike to come back <laughs> oh, <laughs> in my coming, season honey. four. I'm excited. Um, all right, storm is coming. <laughs> <laughs> Just a quick. Um, for listeners, since we're diving into these scenes, when we were lucky enough that Todd Stashwick came on the podcast and he dug into uh, like his preparation for these scenes um, and a lot of just sort of like his point of view as an actor performing them. So if you haven't had a chance to listen um, to that yet, and he will, he moved us to tears. So, I mean, like have a box of tissues or like a drink close by, but um definitely make time to listen to that. Um, before we dive into like the, the substance of Deacon and his father, there were two kind of, one thing is this, su- the suturing scene is, Oh God. Oh, oh my God. Is so, cool. oh, I forgot. I, oh. it's been a while since I rewatched it. And like the close-ups and like oh. the pooling of blood on his neck, and, and then teeth. the guy doing the stitching is like shaking and sh- he's terrible. He's a terrible at suturing up a wound there. But it was so like, why did the camera have to get so close? Shit. <laughs> oh, I think it's so. I mean, here's the thing though: if we like whether it was the like branding by giving a scar to brand people by West seven, like that they are members of the West seven, it's carving into someone's arm. Right. Um, or in season two, when Ramsey and Cole tried to make a deal with the foreman and, and Deacon came back, right. Like all sliced up um, or flash forwarding to season four where the crazy Nazi guy, right. Is going to torture him with a knife um, or, or even with his father. Like there's something about, 
and obviously it's tied like tragically to his backstory, which we're going to learn a lot more, but like physical trauma and physical scars are like, sadly, like not only part of like Deacon's past, but even the like journey we go on with him in the show, like what his body goes through. It's his entire life. Right. Yeah. Well, and the interesting thing about that to me is how he bears it. And it's almost like because of his childhood trauma and stuff, which obviously there were, he has physical scars from, from that. Um, clearly his father's father burned his arm, you know, and, and it carried on down. And then he also burned little poor Teddy. And so he, his entire life, he's covered with these scars. So it's almost and like a lot of victims of trauma do separate themselves like out of body from what's going on. And it, and it always seems to me with Deacon that he does that. That's why he can survive things that you and I could not like the, how many times he's been stabbed and like things that have happened to his body. It's almost like what happens to his physical body doesn't matter because mentally he always stays intact and can make it through. Because what has happened to him physically, like most people would not survive. And it's crazy to me, but it, it's, he almost, it's like he detaches from his, like, you can do whatever you want to my physical body. It's, it's mentally, I'm strong and I'm going to keep surviving. Yeah. Um, the one sort of like uh, rewatch big picture thing is we referred before when Malik is stitching him up and he's like, you know, I'm, I'm keeping you from your friends and keeping you from your enemies. And I am neither. Um, we may be like, obviously we're cheering for like um, for him to be taking care of Deacon and uh, ultimately what Deacon does, does at the end of the episode in, in rescuing Cassie and getting them out of there. But all of this is according to the plan of the other person who's sitting in a box in a cage in the next episode, right? All of this is to get Cassie out of there so she can go find Ethan so that Olivia can bring him down. <laughs> and so it's kind of like when you have sort of throughout the throughout these scenes when his father is like, what does the bad man want? He's always got a reason, right? And you're like, Yep. <laughs> this is all part of like Olivia's bigger plan. Of course, we can't possibly know, but like Deacon's going to be the one to kind of put the big picture together as as with the audience in the season three finale of holy shit, this is all part of Olivia's plan. And Malik being like, no, 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 I didn't say save the witness. I said, find him. Um, so that's just kind of like hits you when you're rewatching it. Todd Stashwick's performance is insane. Like there's so many different things going on here, right? You've got like a one man play, one person playing two roles um, and that level of difficulty. You've got the like physicality of it where he has to go from someone who's like injured and emaciated to somebody freaking doing like the pull-ups, right? And like whether it's screaming, doing the pull-ups in pain or doing the pull-ups and singing, don't you forget about me? Like it's... It's not that I did, like, I just was like, I remember watching the first time being like, you know, he was always had the swagger and the charisma, but there's a lot of pathos and stuff going on. And I just was like, oh my God, right? Like, it's a lot. It's just like a tour de force performance in this episode. I mean, I'm not going to lie and say I didn't get vague, tiny Terminator 2 um, Sarah Connor vibes um, 
from the pull-ups from the pull-ups pull pull um, <laughs> <laughs> like I, I i did not get that um and you know there's worse comparisons obviously <laughs> um which is kind of funny considering that she's in a mental institution for people think that she's making things up and it you know and he is instead actually hallucinating but whatever i digress <laughs> right Okay, so our friend Megan, um, Megan Goeswine at uh, on Twitter, she's been on the pod a bunch. She, we asked her, she wasn't able to make it tonight, but we asked her um, and she wrote up something for us to read and then chat about. Megan is getting her master's in counseling. Um, and there's a lot of really... I mean, obviously, you're delving into some really serious topics with with trauma um, and how people deal with trauma. And so we just want to get her thoughts. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read what Megan sent in to us, and then, and then we can chat about it. All right. So this is from Megan. So how to summarize my thoughts on Deacon and his dad during Enemy? Well, first of all, I haven't rewatched Enemy since I really began digging into studying trauma-informed care theories for counseling. So being able to look at it through a counseling theory lens was super interesting. I'm going to get a little geeky here, but bear with me. I want to give credit where credit is due. One of my favorite integrative working theories for dealing with trauma is from Janina Fisher's book, Healing the Fragmented Selves of Trauma Survivors, Overcoming Internal Self-Alienation. To give you the too long, didn't read, the book combines several psychological counseling and neurobiological theories that center around what is called, quote, parts work, end quote. Basically, when a person experiences trauma, especially long-term trauma that results in complex post-traumatic stress disorder, parts theory, like Fisher, posit that people, quote, fragment, end quote, into different parts to survive. Parts work is obviously more complex but that, than that, but that is the very pared down basics. A good example of this is when people talk about their inner critic who constantly berates them, who in this episode is voiced by Deacon's dad. It is a toxic voice rooted in shame and guilt. But like we see in this episode, what that voice is trying to do is to get Deacon to survive this situation by fighting back. Teddy's voice, when he is played by Deacon, even voices this, you're only alive because of what I taught you. These voices aren't true. They're the products of abuse and trauma, but the shame they cause makes them stick in our brains, make us change our behaviors and triggers our body and mind to respond to them. So you can see why the story of Deacon and his dad resonates with me. It's basically all about this. Deacon was abused constantly by his father and suffered a great deal of trauma. However, people find a way to survive. People survive traumatic situations through their nervous system response mechanisms, fight, flight, freeze, fawn. And then they can codify those behaviors and thoughts, internalizing them. And then that trauma response can become part of who they perceive themselves to be. Over time, Deacon becomes a bully to survive his father. And Deacon thinks he's a bully, just like his dad. This makes Deacon feel intense shame. He doesn't want to be anything like his father, but until this episode, he accepts it as the price of survival in a hostile world. In Enemy, Deacon comes to terms with this. One, Deacon's dad, part externalized, and for most of the episode, Teddy is played by Todd Stashwick. He looks like Deacon, even has the same cagey physicality. This is the part of Deacon that became the bully, became like his father to survive. See the line said by his dad. I never felt more close to you than when you hit me back. 
Also, like I mentioned above, Teddy has become the voice of Deacon's inner critic, constantly shaming and berating him. But really, this dad or Teddy is actually Deacon. These are Deacon's abused parts, shamed parts, critic parts, reenacting old traumas and wounds, and are also desperately trying to get Deacon to survive his current situation. Deacon's dad is ostensibly dead, but not to Deacon. The trauma lives on in Deacon's body and in his mind. And there's a part of Deacon that knows that manifesting Teddy is the quickest way to get Deacon to fight back. Then at the end, after using that voice to get out of bed, grow stronger, stoke his rage, flame his will to survive, if anything, just not to be like his fucking dad, Deacon has a final confrontation with his quote unquote dad. I just needed something. I just needed something to hate. I needed something to beat. I hate what you did to me and him and her. I hate that I look like you, but you don't. It's no longer Deacon Teddy, but just Teddy, a wholly different person. Deacon steps back, startled. It's such a powerful moment where Deacon finally sees that all this shit that he's been carrying around with him, what he thinks made him like the person he despised most in the world, isn't from him, isn't generated by him. It started with his shitbag father, and his father is not him doesn't look like him, is some asshole dude whose only contribution is to tear Deacon down. Maybe that voice helped Deacon survive, but that voice was Deacon, not his dad. And it was Deacon from a wounded place, a place that only knew how to motivate Deacon through harm, because that's all Deacon ever knew. My father gave me these scars. It's the only thing I had to pass on, Teddy says. It's such a hard-hitting sentence. That might as well be the summary of intergenerational trauma. We repeat these behavior patterns of our parents, of their parents, of traumatized communities until we reckon with them as harm. We think that toxic behavior patterns are who we are, that all the shit that brings us down is just us when that's not really true. But that doesn't make you me. And with that final catharsis, Deacon starts to become his own person because that voice, Teddy as Teddy, is also Deacon. That's Deacon realizing he is not his dad. He doesn't have to be. He can live for himself. He breaks off his enmeshment with his father That critic voice still might be there, but that voice is not him, and he does not have to make decisions from that place. Deacon can become his own person with his own code of ethics, his own honor, and his own self. And who Deacon is, who he chooses to be, is a hero. Well, fine then. (laughs) Oh my God, fuck you, Megan, so, so hard. I hate you so much right now. (laughs) There's your expert, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Oh, that bitch made me cry. Oh, no. <laughs> I love her so much, though. That's so good. I, like, what do you add to that? That's so good, and that's so perfect, and she knows exactly what she's talking about in all of this. And I really have nothing to add except what Megan said. It was wonderful, beautifully written, bravo. And you did a really good job reading it, Tina. <laughs> I mean, I think it's pretty incredible that someone who is getting their master's in counseling and studying this in depth, went back and rewatched these scenes and they rang true. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think it it is, man, TV shows try and delve into this stuff a lot. And, and I don't think they always necessarily do it well or right or in ways that ring true. So, I mean, well, they don't do it well intended. They often will do it as a means to motivate characters for for plot, plotty plot reasons. 
Mm -hmm. um, and they often don't actually take the care to tell like a trauma story or, and it's something we've talked about before, like suicide stories in, in, in how those kind of stories, abuse and things like that can often get used of, okay, what, what can we do to like fill out this character further? Oh, I know we can give him like this background abuse story and then that will explain everything and we'll move on from there. Mm -hmm. And they don't realize that there's this level that you need to convey because a that's, that's a really important subject that means a lot to a lot of people. And there's going to be people who are watching it that have also lived through these traumas that are going to see a lot of themselves in these characters or see a lot of themselves in the trauma that they're, they're, you know, trying to explain or portray. And so I think it's important that they really took the time with Deacon and his father. And you can tell they really took the time to kind of examine what trauma does, what abuse does to children, what abuse does to adults, those children who then become adults and still have to carry that with them. And they didn't just use it as this, this side plot point, like, oh yeah, here's Deacon. He's this asshole because his dad, his dad was an asshole and move on. And we're going to go on with the story. Like they really set with it and they really like do it the justice that it deserves. Mm -hmm. And, and, and continue to to actually like use that as character growth and not only just use it to shape the character, but they also, and they've done this before with, with Jennifer, they've done it with Cassie, you know, and they've done it even, and even with Olivia that they use these moments that not only they use it as background as the, for these characters, but they also show them reclaiming themselves and owning the trauma and, and moving past it and becoming and, and like moving on and growing from it. They don't just set with it as, as something that is some back plot, that it's something that they actually learn from and you see character growth and then it becomes important later on in the story. Right, because from this point forward, now the narrative may play with us a little bit where sometimes we're not going to know where Deacon stands. But in terms of what Deke is going on in Deacon's head and the choices he's making from this point on, you know, the way Megan put it, like he chooses to be a hero. Like when his father is saying in the cell, want something, give something, nothing is free. I mean, Deacon right. is ultimately going to be a person that will give up his life for his friends and for a cause. Right. And expect and will gladly do it again and again. <laughs> right. And, right. And do it. Right. Um, and, you know, sort of like the exclamation point they're going to put on it at the very end of the series is, you know, when his father says, you know, because you're you're a bad man is Cassie's you're a good man. And I feel like that sort of grappling with that question about his father and what he thought about himself. It, it, he, he begin, you know, he's no longer, he's coming out of like not letting it define him or Amy, as you said, like starting to claim it. And that's going to be the exclamation point at the end of the series for his character arc. You're a good man. And it's so yeah, simple, but it's so you go back and you watch scenes like this and it's just like, it's such a simple statement, and yet it really isn't. Well, it's but simple, it, it, but it. Go ahead. It also like closes his arc. Like that is the perfect ending to Deacon's entire story in this because that's that's all that he's kind of fought for his entire life was fighting a against becoming his father 
and then also becoming someone that he could be proud of, that his brother could be proud of, because obviously that's something else that that is a part of this trauma of knowing that he feels like responsible for his brother's death. And to have someone else reaffirm this thing that he so desperately has, has craved that you're a good man, like, and then to have him go off with Jennifer. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and it's such a beautiful moment. Well, I, I, to, to sort of piggyback a little bit off of that, like it, it really ties into what we were talking about before with, um, with sort of Olivia's childhood and, um, Basically, sort of these sort of characters f- discovering that the credibility of their parents is questionable mm-hmm. um, and sort of being on a journey about, you know, like if you're abused and, you know, you have a shitty parent and or, you know, again, flip side, even if you have, you know, a really good caring parent, like all of that influences you, all of that like stays with you. But especially if they are, uh, you know, a shitty parent, it is, you know, kind of coming to this realization and, and reckoning that this prophecy that, that they have built for you and hammered into your head is not, doesn't have to be self-fulfilling. Um, I think, you know, I I think it's a realization that, that a lot of kids, you know, teenagers in in your early twenties, you come to, you know, even if you did have like, you know, a really sort of healthy upbringing, you still have this moment of realizing that your parents are fallible, that they are people who have ideas and they might not always be right. And, you know, especially for somebody like Deacon, um, his dad was real fucking wrong um, about the man that he was going to be and the man that he had the potential to be. And so, you know, for some people, it's, it's a lot harder of a journey to, to sort of shake that off. Yeah. I mean, the other part, um, you know, it's particularly like we will, we know that like in, in the, in the epilogue, Deacon will again be with his brother. Um, And it fills in a little bit of sort of, we knew that there were inklings. Like we knew that Cole reminded him of his brother, um, that he looked at him as another little brother, but it kind of, it does fill in and explain what in season one seemed a little bit like why not, not only, I, I guess we understood why Deacon, uh, to a certain extent took it so personally when Cole refused to kill Ramsey and left, but why he was so determined to turn like to rule the West seven in a certain way and to make sure that Cole like abided by that code and, and to cast Ramsey out or have Ramsey killed for not. And he kind of gets at it. it. He says, everything I did was to protect him, to spare him referring to his brother and the voice, the inner voice that he hears is, you kept him weak and you got him killed. And so I feel like it, it also sort of informs kind of, it lets us know a little bit more about what was going on in Deacon's head when he was so determined to to mold Cole into being that person and, and why he also was okay with with when Ramsey and Cole turned him over to the foreman, right? Like Amy, you were on for that episode, right? And this is sort yeah, of that other, I, yeah. That- for him, it, it showed strength. Like to him, it was just like, oh, see, like you got that I, lesson. I you how to survive, and yeah. you learned you learned the lesson, and you learned yeah. it from me. Yeah. So yeah, there's so much of that where he was trying to. He still had that internal dialogue that we see played out in this episode, but he was still holding on to it back then. In which, okay, yeah, I caused my brother to be weak. Um, that's why he died. So what I need to do is, okay, clearly, because he buys into, like, children of abuse do, like, okay, yeah, I guess that did make me stronger. 
So I guess in turn, I need to be abusive or carry that because all these people also need to survive. And this, this kid here that looks just like he reminds me so much of my brother, like I have this opportunity to, to rectify that and, and make sure he survives and strengthen him. And by doing that, I'm going to be also abusive to him as well. Yeah. Beep, did you have any thoughts? I He's love Deacon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, Megan, yeah, it's what Amy was saying before. Megan like nailed every aspect of it. I don't feel like I have anything to, I mean, to add to that. I wish that she could have, you know, been on for even like questions or to expound upon that a bit, but she was just, it was incredible. Yeah. Can yeah, I just so- call out the, the one thing um, that I noticed uh, amid like all of their, all of Deacon's arguing back and forth with his figment dad? Yeah. He bitched his dad for smelling like two buck Chuck. And I'm like, huh, Deacon's dad shopped at Trader Joe's. That was, <laughs> that was my takeaway in all of that. Was- <laughs> Just saying, like of all things for like some asshole dad, like you kind of don't think that like child abusers shop at TJ's, but apparently they do. He learns something new every day. I was, I was thinking, I was thinking, wow, Deacon is not on Cassie's Titan meal plan. (laughs) She had like, she had like couscous and kebabs and he got like a a hardened wafer like shoved under the Like what, okay, what was Deacon eating? Like that is a question that I have for Terry. Like, what were you feeding? What were you making Todd eat in that shot? Like, I'm very, very curious of what the hell that was. It looked like, like days old non. Like, like it looks like I mean, really, really old really, round bread. I mean, like, I, I fucking love like, non in all forms. So I'm same. with you, Deacon. I would eat it. Yeah, like, well, I mean, I would eat it. If that's the only thing they're giving me, I would fucking eat it. But what was it though? Like it, I don't know. It had like a topping. Like it was like, they like tried to like present it like, Oh, here we put a topping on this. It's kind of presentable. Eat that up. I, I like so- that. We don't even have a word for that. It's just topping. What is, what is this come with? Topping. The other thing. So we, so I think when we finally come to the end of this podcast, I'm going to just compose a list of all of my Google searches. I went down a, I went down a rabbit hole of um, fluorescent lights and urine. Still better than my Google searches, sister. <laughs> I went down. I, I went down a rabbit hole of trying to figure out, like, is there something special about fluorescent lights and urine and being able to light them on fire? And I, I learned all kinds of fun. Like, I was reminded of the discovery of phosphorus and all kinds of fun things with <laughs> urine. You're but on I, a list now, by the way. <laughs> I did they put it you again. on a list. <laughs> Um, but I did not, if, if anyone out there has experimented with fluorescent lights and urine and has a definitive answer, we'd love to hear from you, but I wasn't able to get an answer to that. Yeah. Apparently there's something where like you can do it with like phosphorus, but I really don't know what that has to do with the fluorescent light. I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm, I'm not a scientist. Um, I feel like maybe would Alicia know enough about oh, chemistry? We should have asked yeah. our chemical engineer. I mean, you have a goddamn chemical engineer in the roster. Oh, we have such a deep bench, and I forgot to ask that. Well, maybe she Sports can follow, ball. Up, follow up on Twitter. Um, <laughs> there's, there's, I mean, just in the future also, we've got Deacon marking the days on the wall, and that is the cell Jones is going to be in in season four. And when Deacon comes to see her and looks at those markings and gets the nosebleed, that's when he gets the idea about bringing the West Seven to Titan. 
So, you know, obviously, and this episode is just to let us know how much time has gone by, both the markings on the wall and his amazing beard that he's grown <laughs> by the end of the episode. And, um, and that hair. Boy, that hair is something. <laughs> good, good something or bad something? It's, it doesn't register for me. Hey, it's Deacon. At this point, it's all, it's all a good something. <laughs> it's, it's, I know. It's, I mean, he has I, a sexiness to him. Calm, uh, like, I'll. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had a whole public like, yes, Deacon, (laughs) like meltdown on Twitter about this, about whether Jennifer and Deacon, I don't know if you want to speak to that, Amy, if you have thoughts about that. Um, I I don't want to upset Terry, so I'll just (laughs) answer myself. We'll, we'll, we'll save that for a different podcast. Um, the, you know, another line that really um, didn't hit me, but really hurts, particularly because you know that when they wrote this episode, they were writing the whole thing and they knew how it was going to end. When when Deacon goes to, wait, are we talking about when Deacon goes to to Cassie? No, not that. Okay, because I have, I have that line flagged, uh, but continue. Yes. No, the line, I'm not dying here. You went out with a whimper, but I'm going out with a bang somewhere far away from this shithole. And you're like, ah, fuck, you are like hundreds of years before in the Middle Ages is where you're going to (laughs) die. Like, you will go out, but he's going to come back (laughs) to Titan definitely with a bang. So I was like, that's sad. Yeah, I got sad, but then I got excited. I'm like, well, it can mean both things. It can mean both things. Um, The other thing I thought was interesting is like part of – this whole, like, you're a bad man. You know that people don't do things without expecting something in return. And his father says, the devil always tells you what you want to hear, Teddy. And I think it's interesting that not only is Deacon the one that everything clicks into place, that this is a con at the end of this season, but he also, despite what we as the audience are seeing, never falls for Olivia's manipulations about you're wasted, they don't appreciate you, I appreciate you. We think he's falling for it, right? But that devil always tells you what you want to hear. It is, Deacon never falls for Olivia's manipulations. In fact, he he's running a con himself, if that makes sense. Um, so I thought that that was kind of like another interesting, um, the whole right, right, left mantra. It's so great. Like, it's such a great, if like, by interesting. Just- you mean sexy? Then I, <laughs> <laughs> Tell I feel us- like we, this episode has a lot of like unintentional sexiness, right? So it, we it, heard oh, all over the place. All right. So we heard, we heard Joe's, um, did, did we get your full like sexiness appreciation of Olivia? I mean, I like, here's the thing. I'm very scared that Allison does her research before you know, coming <laughs> on the pod. And I don't want her to be like, whoa, that's a creeper. Um, <laughs> we'll be like, no, she's, she, she won't be on for that one. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, you know, she's got, she's got the hair going on. It's the voice. It's mm-hmm. totally the voice and like felineness of, mm-hmm. of the way that she plays her. Like she's just, she's vampire hot. I don't make the rules. Amy, counterpoint. Tell us, tell us about your Deacon feelings. Oh God. I thought I was going to get to, I had Olivia feelings too. I mean, but you know, oh, like, basically what, Bring basically it. what Joe said, like, <laughs> <laughs> But that's all I got to say to that because yes, it's it is a vampire, Olivia. Oh, you get to ask her that. You can ask her that. Are you a vampire? 
<laughs> Fan uh, question. Yes. <laughs> it should be your opening question, honestly. Like Fan last question from about Dark Gaming. I, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I don't know what to say. Well, basically, Megan just slayed me with all her Dinkin bots that my brain is short-circuited. But just that... Um, I love Deacon. I love Todd Stashwick too. Like a part of what makes Deacon Deacon, like isn't just the words that they're giving him and isn't the parts that he's getting to play in the plot. It has so much to do with how Todd Stashwick has played him. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's just something uh, about like a, his voice too. I love his voice. Speaking of mm-hmm. like actors that have awesome sexy voices i really love his voice like how his physicality and how he how he plays scenes and how he stands his stature like i just don't know if anyone else playing that role would have the same effect so this is just me admiring todd stashwick and how he brought deacon to life and how i feel like he's the one that contributed to deacon being special like it almost feels like it's one of those things where it's because of the actor, what he brought into this character, that they made this character something bigger. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, oh, absolutely. it much reminds me of, of Spike. I mean, he was supposed to die. Yep. One episode in, he was supposed to die. But he's and then incredible. the character's just amazing. Yeah, and so it was like, well, obviously he's sticking around. And like that's great on the writer's part as well, to just acknowledge like when you have something that gels you know, mm-hmm. and it's just better than what you were expecting, or it's better than what you intended to write to just let the story flow that way and go in that direction because yeah. it, it ends up with much more of a payoff. I mean, yeah, same or, thing or like with Jason Dory. With what? Le- uh, Lana Mormont from uh, Game of Thrones, the little girl. Um, oh, yeah. She yeah. was only supposed to have one scene, and thank fuck they like, you know, say what you will about Game of Thrones. It's a whole separate issue, but like, she was amazing. She yeah. was awesome. Yeah, or like Jason Doring on Veronica Mars, right? Wait, like, he wasn't supposed yeah. to be long term. No, no, Duncan. Really? Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Su- he was supposed to be like the dick protagonist and like AKA Spike. Kind of side thing. Yeah, yeah he wasn't yeah, supposed to be exactly love interest. He was still going to be on the show, but it's just like yeah. when they realize you have magic and you go with it. Yeah, don't waste um, the magic. There's also something that, like, to my Gen X heart, like watching a man do pull-ups while singing don't you forget about me it's just like i mean it's like it's like what we used to watch we used to watch the breakfast club like at sleepovers in middle school like it just goes to like um which also that's a really fun um thing that's built in that todd stashwick talked about when he came on the podcast about why deacon sings that song um, is because his his father identified with Bender, who, of course, in the film also bears cigarette burns from his father and is abused by his father. Um, so yeah. it is poignant, you know, like he that song means so many different things at different moments. Um, it's kind of an anthem for Deacon as he's trying to get physically stronger. It's like his his father's memory like in his mind you know his father then voices that line don't you forget about me right um and then of course since he's gonna say it out loud um takes us up to what right right left all of that means it's a great reveal it's getting him to cassie um which can we all just take a minute and remember where things left off with them in season two which was 
Um, I get it. It wasn't personal. Oh no, it was personal. <laughs> they were not in a good place <laughs> when they left. No, they were not. They were not. Um, and I love that like he, when they began season two, their whole kind of like meet cute was over him teaching her how to stab a bunch of people outside of a door with a knife. And that's how he's going to rescue her. She's going to see the blood pooling under the door. Um, and then he just opens it up and her face is just like, you know, like how circumstances change and so happy to see him. And then his forget about me. And it's just like... That's the line that I had Honestly. that I had called out. Forget about me. Like, no, she didn't, Deacon. She did not forget about you. So good. So good. Oh, so God, good. I too. He's I always the secret weapon. I mean, that's the thing. Is like, obviously, Ramsey's like a Trojan horse over, but like Deacon's a Trojan horse, but he is always the secret weapon. Like he's going to be the secret weapon at the end of the story. Um, you know, he's not on the word of the witness. He's always the one like, so, uh, and the hug, it's so good. And I like where it leaves off here because in the next episode that it's going to be soul crushing. Cause she's going to be like, where's Cole? And he's going to be like, Oh, and then they're going to get back. They're going to get back to Raritan and everyone's going to be like, Oh, it's Deacon. <laughs> Cause there was, Oh, it's so brutal. So, and that's what makes, that's what makes, don't you forget about me? Like so meta for Deacon too because so often they do um forget about him but how bad did deacon smell in that hug (laughs) like i have a real problem like always immersing myself into like certain moments on tv shows like especially period dramas but like something like this where i'm like gene malik tended malik also tenderly tended his wounds and yeah but beard. after after a while deacon was just like straight up sarah connoring his pull-ups <laughs> and like i did not see like a wash tub or anything like ooh. no there was no showers happening and no. also let's talk about malik's wound tending for a second like uh, <laughs> some of the wraps like the wrap around his shoulder and then on i'm like dude that is some shitty ass like <laughs> you did not take the the afternoon class at the Red Cross. About yeah, that any, is. Mm, l- let's no be honest. First aid training. Cassie didn't get an epidural. Like I have a lot of questions about the medical care at Titan. <laughs> it's just not not great. <laughs> Surely, in some of those towers, there was like one person who watched reruns of ER. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I never even thought about like think about the TV capabilities if you're sitting in 2163 and you could just watch anything you wanted. Like, hmm. No, you can't. It's like crazy cult time 24/7. <laughs> you just go TV breaks and then you have to be yeah, yeah you no one's sitting, sitting in that main room with your rare freaking yeah. cloak on. <laughs> <laughs> You like That's you want to watch the next the the Deadwood movie, but no. Instead, it's fucking chanting hour. Fuck. <laughs> That's how. Yeah, you it's like it. the most boring version of cloak and dagger you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> Actual cloaks, no daggers. <laughs> oh, they have plenty of daggers. They're just not doing anything. <laughs> oh my god. Um, did you guys have anything else other than? Oh man, it was just really fun to watch Olivia and Deacon in this episode. Uh, no, it's just really fun for Joe to end on a hygiene note. <laughs> it's on brand. <laughs> I'm, just, on brand. I'm fastidious, okay? <laughs> why yeah, do you think why do you use. think Jones was cleaning up Olivia? Because Jones also has standards. <laughs> it's a thing. It's a thing. 
Um, you guys, so fun. Thank you so much in doing this um, not so mini mini sode with us. <laughs> As, as yeah, we knew right? it would be. I know. Um, I I hope you guys will co- both come back. Amy, you're coming back for causality, right? You're doing the 80s romp with us. Yes, I am. I am. And, and Joe, you gotta come back for 45 RPM, the big okay. Olivia episode. Yeah? Yeah. 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 Just bother me, bother me when when it has to happen. All right. So cool. next next up um, is Allison Down and Terry Metallis to break down the rest of this episode, our part two of our, I guess, our celebration of Enemy. Uh, if you guys have anything else, can we'll you, you wait? Can ahead. you call the episode um, like Olivia Vampire? Like something something <laughs> for that. I'm just I'm just spitballing here. You guys can workshop it, but just put that at, put that on your on your radar. Sexy vampire. Sexy vampire. Yes. Yes. Well, no, but the sexy was never in question. So just <laughs> sexy Olivia colon vampire question mark <laughs> question mark exactly perfect <laughs> great all right now i'm glad we worked that out we'll see you soon <laughs>